Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the wonderful world of education. This time around, I was delighted to welcome Gemma Sherwood back to the show. Gemma is Head of Maths at Haybridge High School in Sixth Form in Worcestershire. She's also a Governor at a primary school and a Professional Development Lead for the NCETM. Gemma is also the creator of one of my favourite educational blogs, gemmaths.wordpress.com, and the author of the excellent How to Enhance Your Maths Subject Knowledge. Now, as we embark upon a new school year, the likes of which we have never experienced before due to COVID-19 and the impact it has had, I thought Gemma was the perfect guest to have on the show to try to answer the many questions that have been flying around Twitter. So, in a wide-ranging conversation, we chatted about the following things and plenty more besides. How is Gemma feeling about going back to school? What will her first message to her department be and also to her students? How is Gemma adapting her schemes of work for each year group? How will she cope with things like collecting in books, moving around classrooms and assessment for learning? What advice does she have for heads of departments in general? And then we do something we were unable to do last time Gemma was on the show, talk about her excellent book. And Gemma ends by reflecting on something she wished she knew when she first started teaching that she knows now. I absolutely loved this conversation. Despite her wealth of experience, Gemma speaks with a tremendous modesty, making it clear that none of what she said is meant as advice or guaranteed to work. But hearing how she and her team have thought through the challenges that lie ahead and come up with a wide variety of approaches will hopefully provide food for thought for those listening in similar positions. One quick plug before we crack on. COVID-19 also means that we may not experience in-person CPD, at least the way it has been for some time. Indeed, last September, I had a booking at a school or conference on 15 days in that month. This year, I have a big fat zero. So if you're looking for some hopefully high quality CPD at a very reasonable price, then I have converted seven of my one day workshops into online versions, complete with links to research, resources and activities. They are focusing thinking, atomization, worked examples, intelligent practice, problem solving, retrieval and formative assessment. These workshops can be taken at a time and place that is safe and convenient for you, either individually or as a department. Full details can be found at craig.barton.podia.com and there is a link in the show notes. Anyway, I shall deprive you no longer as I introduce Gemma Sherwood. Enjoy this one, I know you will, and as ever, I will see you on the other side. Okay, Gemma. Well, it gives me great pleasure to welcome you back to the podcast. And my first question for you, uh, recording as we are in these weird times uh, towards the end of August, is how's the lockdown been for you and your family? It's been really strange, which I expect everybody would say. Uh, And in some ways, I've absolutely loved it. And in other ways, I've absolutely hated it. So it's hard to put one word on it. 
Um, I really enjoyed the, the initial period when we were all at home together and it was all quite new. Um, it's my own schoolwork, although there was schoolwork to do, it wasn't quite so busy in that initial period. So I had I got to spend loads of time with my own kids and doing lots of activities with them and teaching them. And then as time went on, my own schoolwork got so much more in volume and it became harder and harder to do things with them and that's when kind of tension started to fray a bit and <laughs> then became not not so pleasant at all anymore but there are little things like the fact that um you know you were allowed your um, little bit of exercise every day we discovered so many places around by us for walking we never even knew existed before and even now we've kept it up as a family quite a lot and we just go we just go out for walks, which we never did before, particularly, well, not very often anyway, and now we do it all the time. So there's lots of lovely things like that, which I appreciate from it. Nice. And we were saying just before we started recording, you, you've two children, um, nearly eight and, and ten. How, how have they found it, Gemma, with schools being closed? Well, they went back to school for the last half term because of what I was just saying to you, because my I, I tried to keep them off as long as I could, even though they could have, have gone in in theory. But my workload was just got too much and I couldn't spend them or pay them any attention at all really um so they went back in for that last half term but they really enjoyed being at home um and they I think I and I enjoyed working with them as well and it helped me a lot from especially from a maths point of view because I got a really good insight into how younger children do learn and how they pick up the maths um, and made, and all those things that when they come to you in secondary that you just assume they know and you take granted, I kind of got to understand in a lot more depth where those things come from. Or things that I knew in theory before, but now I've seen them really closely in action. So that's been very helpful for me, actually. They themselves really enjoyed it. And my son, um, we were chatting to some friends last night and, my, and they said, so do you want, are you looking forward to going back to school in September? And he said, I am, because I want to see my friends, but I really enjoyed homeschooling with mummy. So I'm quite oh. happy. Oh, that's nice. That's lovely to hear. Fantastic. Um, right, Gemma. Well, we're recording this on the 21st of, of August. So yesterday was GCSE results day and obviously the week before was A-level results day. And I'm assuming um, that you'll have never quite encountered anything like like these kind of results days before so how were they for for you your colleagues and your students um stressful <laughs> is probably the best word yeah so the a-level results actually yeah I woke up on last Thursday and opened up my a-level results and as I started reading them I could feel my blood boiling more and more <laughs> um, and then and then I just burst into tears Oh and no! Said to me, "What's the matter?" And I said, "These results that that this is not my children. This is not my students. This this is not right." Um, and as obviously everybody had a similar response, and we were particularly hard hit because we're a relatively large cohort as well. So we mm. were a cohort of sixty doing A level maths, which for secondary school is on the larger side. Yes. Um, so we were having then subsequently read about how um, Ofqual's algorithm worked and the way it dealt with cohort sizes and things like that. We were particularly hard hit, I think. But it kind of it came good in the end, albeit in a very convoluted and stressful way. So, uh, yeah, it's, I think the best thing um, I can do from all of this with results is wipe it all away in my head. 
because <laughs> we don't we don't have to analyse them. We don't have to do anything with them from our point of view at school. My A-level students have got now got what they need to get into university or to whatever else they want to do next. My GCSE students um, have got a fair what I believe is a fair set of results now. So that's that's all that matters. And I don't have to think about it anymore, which is good. That's interesting. Yeah. That So it's kind of, yeah, just kind of put this down to experience and move on from it. Is that is that the kind of message that you're you're going to be telling your team and you're going to be thinking of anyway? Yeah, I think so. There's no point. There's no point dwelling on it because there's what it, it's turned out better in the end for them. Um, and the whole period of the week around it was insane in terms of what we were hearing from day to day and what was changing. But it, that's something that's in the past and we can do nothing about. So. Um, yeah, the best thing to do is to move on from it and not think about it, really, I think. Fantastic. Very positive, Gemma. I like it. And, and final kind of question before we dive into the questions from Twitter. Um, how are you yourself feeling about going back to school and teaching uh, real kids in real classrooms face to face? What are your feelings? I'm really looking forward to it um, because I've missed them and I've missed those interactions and being around them all in school. But on the same um, account, I'm exceptionally nervous about it because I don't know what to expect. We know we know how different it's going to be and how different the day is going to be and how different lessons are going to have to be uh, to, to fit around all the guidance and the rules that we've been given. And um, I'm, I, I'm, I'm nervous for two things, I would say. I'm nervous for the effect that all of this has on us as a school community, um, mainly because it's the unknown and I, I don't know how it's going to play out. Um, but I'm also nervous for the potential workload because we've got, well, I'm sure we'll talk about it later, but we've got all sorts of things to do with if students are off school at the same time as you have students in school. We have to make sure that we prepare um, work that is decent for those who are not in school as well and it has the potential to be exceptionally heavy on workload so that makes me nervous as well because I don't want my team to be doing or to be working all hours more than they need to and those kinds of things so yeah that that makes me nervous and are you nervous about the um, the safety side of things at all, Gemma? Does does that make you scared a bit? And are you planning to wear a mask and what, what's the kind of guidance you've been given on that? I don't know whether this is, people are going to hate me for this, but I don't feel nervous about that at all. Um, and I think I'm not quite sure why. I, I don't know whether I, I ought to be nervous, <laughs> and, and I'm not. And, and there's something wrong with me. But uh, I'm not wearing a mask. I know we've got very strict um, guidelines in place for school, but in terms of keeping everything clean and minimising um, any kind of risk of infection as, as much as we possibly can. And that's all very strictly in place. And I also know that my students will be, on the whole, very good at sticking to those things because they're brilliant. So I don't feel worried from that point of view, no. It's interesting, isn't it? Because um, I've spoke to a few people and it's a real split um, seems to be an opinion on this. Some people are, are genuinely scared and, and understandably so. And some people, yeah, seem to take the view that it's 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 probably going to be OK with, with the measures in place and so on. I guess as a head of department, you, you, you may well have people in your team who, who have feelings on either side of that. Yeah. Will, that, will that be a challenge there, Gemma, dealing with, with colleagues who are particularly nervous because of the health reasons? Potentially, yes. But like I said, we've 
worked our SLT have been absolutely brilliant over the last few months and even over the summer holiday and just before when they've been planning this return they've been fielding constant questions from the staff and responding to them and they've produced a massive long handbook with all sorts of uh, with, with all, all the questions that people have been asking addressed at the back so they've done everything they can to allay people's concerns and to address people's concerns as well so everybody is going back to school in the knowledge that although we can't um, eliminate risk, we are doing everything we possibly can to reduce it as much as we can. Got it. Fantastic. And I was going to well, say, sorry, um, if I can just add on oh, yeah, that go, as well, I, I myself am mathematic. So um, I think part, maybe part of the, the lack of worry that I have is the fact that through the, in the beginning of lockdown, I had a period where... Uh, I felt petrified and I was thinking if I if I catch this I'm, what, I'm just going to die and I went through all those really macabre thoughts yes. and then and I've come through the other side of that and and, I've, and I'm fine and I have been fine so I think maybe in my own mind I've got to the point where I've gone yeah no I'm okay now and this is all all right whether that's right or not I don't know but that's that's where I'm at. That's interesting. That is interesting. Either just on a personal matter, I seem to have developed asthma during this lockdown. At age thirty-eight, I've 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 now got two inhalers. Never had them in oh, my really? life. Yeah, I've no idea what what's going on there. So I, I was I was exactly like you. I didn't want to see anybody for about two or three months, and then now I'm thinking I'll probably be okay. But again, that's we're we're now in lockdown in in Blackburn where I'm where where I live. So oh, it's yeah. the worst time for me to start getting a bit relaxed about it. But. Yeah, this could be my last podcast if all goes to pot, but we'll, uh, yeah, fingers, <laughs> fingers crossed. <laughs> fingers crossed. We'll be... privilege. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's make it a good one. Right. Okay. So um, there was loads of questions I wanted to ask you, Gemma, but I also thought it'd be good to, to go to Twitter to see what people wanted to, to know about and get your take yeah. on. Um, rather annoyingly, the, the first question that comes back from, from Adam Boxer is, would you rather fight one horse-sized duck or a hundred duck-sized horses? And this is, he's got about 30 likes. Now, I, you know, Adam, the former guest on the show, I thought he'd take it a bit more seriously, but I guess we've got to get your answer to that one, Gemma. So what is it? One horse-sized duck or a hundred duck-sized horses? Well, I have been, since been informed by people who sent me links on Twitter to the idea of scaling up animals and how if you had <laughs> if you actually scaled um, a duck to the size of a horse it would lose the ability to fly um, and it, it wouldn't be like a, just a massive duck so um, that that kind of helped me with what I was already thinking because I asked Adam whether or not this was I think I used the phrase limb to limb contact yeah, because uh, obviously you can't do hand to hand because it's a duck um, but <laughs> Uh, he said, no, you could have a little weapon. So what I decided was um, I would have some kind of little weapon and I would somehow just damage this massive duck's feet so then it couldn't move around and then I would just win because they've got webbed feet. Nice. I was thinking I'm sure the webbed feet are relatively easy to damage. I can't believe I went into much detail. This much detail. No, I'm very impressed by that. So you're taking, oh, yeah. on, you're taking on the big the big duck. You're yeah, taking so, it on, but so, you're going so for then the Because feet. they told me that if you scaled it up, it wouldn't be able to fly, that cemented it for me. And so I would fight the horse-sized duck. There we go. Fantastic. Superb. 
Well, we've probably peaked there in terms of insight that we're going to get from this podcast. Uh, But (laughs) but we'll we'll see where we go next. Right. Okay. So um, I've compiled all the the kind of suggestions for questions and I've added a few of my own. So I want to start in terms of kind of the immediate short term. So let's think about this first day back. I'm assuming perhaps you have an inset day or a couple of inset days at the start of the year before the kids come in. And what will your first departmental meeting with your colleagues look like, Gemma? What are the kind of messages that you want to get across? We've got one inset day, so that's the Tuesday, the 1st of September, um, and we have um, a, short, a, a small time in the afternoon to do our department meeting. Um, we have to do it all at distance, of course, so we, we had a couple of options. We could have all gone into classrooms and used Teams, but we, we, we're very lucky in that we have two classrooms with a kind of a, a divider between them that we can open up to make one large room. So my plan at the moment, unless I get told I'm not allowed to do it, is to have this massive large room so we can all be in the same room together. Um, because I want us to be able to talk to each other properly and yes. each other in person because that's really important to me at the moment because it's been so long. Um, so when we're there, the the main message I want to get across is that um, we don't need to worry about this coming year in terms of what we are teaching our students. Um, Just before the the holiday, I spent a long time looking at the scheme of work and looking at what the students had done over lockdown and what they hadn't done and kind of planning how we can weave everything in, which I know we're going to talk about a bit later. Um, But as much as I can have control over the unknown and the uncontrollable. I've tried to do so. So in terms of making sure we know what we're doing, everybody should know what they're doing. So we don't need to worry. We don't need to panic. We don't need to go, ah, how are we going to fit all this in? Um, What I want them to know more than anything else is that it's just really important that they are um, calm and relaxed and that they convey that to our students as well so that they could tell our students that we've got them that we know that we've got this all together and we are going to um, we're going to help them get back to where they need to be um, and I'm very wary about that phrase because it's I don't like saying you know you must be here at this point and you must be here at this point so yes. they need to be I'm not saying like we have to get them to a certain point by a certain time what I'm saying is I expect you'll have lots of students who are worried that they have missed out and I want them. I want my team to not to be calm, be able to calmly convey to the students that they don't need to worry that we've got them. Um, in terms of what we're doing in the meeting, we are spending all our department time looking at um, planning together so that we can minimise some of this extra workload that we've got. Um, I don't know if you want to wait. So we've got a question later all about uh, scheme of work and how and, and remote teaching and that kind of thing. Or if you want me to talk about it now, but we're basically going to be going as, as soon as we can straight into um, planning our lessons and making sure everything's ready. Let's tease. Let's tease the listeners with that, Gemma. We've got that. Got that coming up. Uh, yeah, coming up soon. Can I just ask, just on a practical um, level, do you have any new starters in terms of, of staff? Oh, yes, we've got an NQT. Oh wow! What what you? I mean, because that, that yeah. is that's a whole new whole new ball game, right? Because that first day back is so important with all the induction stuff and me and showing you or showing all the schemes of work and so on. What what's your plan there? Well, he's already uh, the the guy in my department who's going to be mentoring him has already been speaking to him before the summer holiday um, over Teams, and he's shown him the scheme of work and where the resources are and all that kind of stuff, and been answering lots of questions with him. So he's had the summer 
to spend time thinking about all that and looking into it, which is really helpful. So, um, yeah, it's it's going to be a, a matter of getting him to try and get to know us as much as possible and then getting him familiar with the school because he hasn't actually spent any time in the school, in the physical environment. So I think we're going to spend some time taking him around, showing him where he's got to go for lessons and things, because then following day, that's it. We're all straight in. <sighs> what a year to start your NQT. Hey, flipping it. Jeez. Well, okay. Let's let's move now to the um, to to the first lesson with the students. And um, not I'm not not so much talking about the actual maths and stuff you're going to be doing, but I'm I'm interested in these these messaging. What what are some of the things that you're going to be saying to to your students, and that you hope your staff are going to be saying to the students? And um, in particular, uh, in reference to a question that we were asked, um, how can we rebuild confidence of students who've spent five months struggling to engage or access work? I was thinking about this question because I was reading through them all again last night on Twitter. Um, And part of it is what I mentioned just the fact that our students need to know that we um, we know what we're doing, that we have this all in hand, that we have planned as much as is possible to plan for however this plays out now and they but they need to know that so it's really important that we make that explicit to them because um, I think if they feel like they have confidence in us as the adults that's going to help a lot. Um, I think it's also okay to be honest and to say we don't know how this is going to play out, we don't know how long we've got in this strange unusual setup here but however long it is we are we we are going to make sure that they they still learn and that they still do really well. Um, so that first thing is about making your pos- making um, your how do I want to wear this making explicit the the fact that we know what we're doing so that they have confidence in us. Um, and then in terms of rebuilding the confidence day to day. For me, the most important thing is making sure that we find out where they are at and what they can do and very quickly start to build on that incrementally, which is essentially just teaching them well, isn't it? That's what teaching is. Um, So it's not kind of rushing through stuff and going, oh, man, we've got all this stuff to do. We need to quickly get through it. We've got a lesson on this and a lesson on that and we'll catch you up. It's about teaching them properly and teaching them how we normally would as much as possible, but making sure we start at the right place so that we we don't race them through and, uh, and and so that they don't end up having glaring holes or gaps in their knowledge because we're so so obsessed with rushing them on through some pre uh, pre uh, prescribed scheme yeah that makes perfect sense Gemma and um, what I'd like to ask you here is before we start to talk about the 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 specifics of of different year groups I want to jump to a question that I was going to ask you a bit later but I think it makes sense to ask it now because you've you've alluded to it Um, and that is it's, it's, it's a different kind of workload this coming year because, again, it's not just preparing for, for teaching as we know it. It's also preparing for the chance that either the entire school could be closed down if there's a local lockdown or different cohorts of students will be off because of family members catching it and so on and so forth. Can you just talk through what that's meant in terms of your workload and, and how you're preparing for those different scenarios that could happen just in general? Yeah, so the DfE is expecting us and its guidance to be um, prepared for this this time. Um, <laughs> as God, obviously, we were not at all prepared before. Um, 
so the way our school has interpreted that um, is that they've said we need to make sure that we have ready to go um, lessons um, and resources that are parallel to what's happening in class. So what that's meant from my point of view, but when we were first told that, I thought, oh, my word, does that mean we've got to record video lessons for every single lesson in school? Because that's insane. Yeah. But I kind of stopped and stepped back and took a breath and realised that actually, there's a, especially for maths, we're very privileged because there's a huge amount out there already. So what um, I and uh, another member of my team did uh, before lockdown, uh, sorry, before summer and just over summer is we went through um, Hegarty Maths, which we subscribe to, and Corbett Maths, which is free. And we indexed all the videos on both of those to our own scheme of work. So our scheme of work now has for every single section of every single unit, um, the relevant Corbett and Hegarty videos. Oh, and the Oak Academy uh, lessons where they where those exist. Um, although that's always increasing. So I need to kind of keep going back and checking this, if there's been more added there. So we now know where there are gaps. So where there's things in our scheme of work that for which there doesn't already exist a video. And that's then what we as a team will be making short videos for so that if somebody is off we can point them to the relevant videos and the relevant activities which we will have already saved in the right place and that then is their provision um, so they will be they'll have access to the same uh, exercises that we do in class and they will have access to the videos that teach them as well that sounds like a, a sensible and, and fantastic plan, Gemma. Just on the um, just on the oak stuff, um, I, I was involved in in reviewing some of that that content. I don't know if you've seen it, but it, it's I think it's absolutely fantastic. So the, some of those lessons and resources are superb, and it's it's completely freely available, and it's going to be continually added to throughout the course of the year to hopefully cover everything. I mean, not even throughout the course of the year. I think it should all be in theory ready for ready for the start of September. Have you had a chance to, to look at any of the material? I have looked at a little bit. You know, I've looked more at the um the ones for, for younger children because I use some of it with my own children. Yes. Um and some and and they've they've loved some of that. Like my son went on some of Adam Box's year seven uh math science videos even though he was in year five. Um, and he's absolutely adored them and he's learned all sorts of fabulous stuff. Anyway, uh, back to the maths. Um, I have looked at some of it and I haven't gone through every single one of them because I don't have the time to do that. Um, but I have watched a, a, a kind of a, a small random sample of them through. And, and and yeah, I do. I do like what I've seen so far. My my one reservation I have at the moment is the fact that it that there seems to be a lot of videos on a small number of topics. Although I'm saying that from when I looked probably in the first week of the summer holiday, there were lots of videos on things like expanding brackets and that kind of stuff. And then there were other topics that are missing videos completely. But I know that they've got their planning to get that all done. So um, it's just a matter of keeping checking back to see when those things are added in. But I like the fact that they have those interactive quizzes on them. So it's a bit more than just watching a video. Um, and they have the tasks on them as well. So that kind of sets it apart from a lot of the other, the, from the, the two other videos that I mentioned because of the fact that it, all the activities and everything are wrapped up in this one resource. 
Yeah, I, I agree. Um, let me just ask you a bit of a curveball question here, Gemma, that's just occurred to me. It was a conversation that uh, um, I, I saw on Twitter, and I, th- I think Adam Boxer was involved in this. He's dominating this podcast uh, so far. Um, he, he's been recording videos, as you say, uh, science videos for Oak, um, and I've been recording um, CPD videos, uh, online CPD videos over the summer, because obviously lots of lots of my events have, have been cancelled. And what, what Adam was saying and what I was thinking when I was recording these events, and I don't know what your take on this is going to be at all. That's what I'm fascinated to know, is that because when I was recording these videos of, of the workshops that I'd normally do, I could do kind of six or seven takes until I got it exactly right, until I got my words right, my pacing right, and so on. And Adam was saying the same thing, that when he's recording these, like demonstrating a worked example, if he's doing it on video, the version he puts out is the best version. It's the one where he's as clear as possible. There's no ambiguities. He's managed to sort out any mistakes and so on. And what I saw when I saw this conversation on Twitter was that, that Adam was just chucking into the mix because we've got all these wonderful video resources, is there an argument that perhaps in class we could make more use of these videos, perhaps show the kids the best explanation we've ever recorded or the best explanation that we've found from a from a video online or wherever it is, and then the kids watch it, and then we then jump in and do the AFL and all that kind of thing. And I'm going to ask you later on if there's any kind of positives that you've taken from lockdown yourself that you're going to bring into, into the classroom. But is, is this potentially one of them making more use of these videos that give our best explanation, as opposed to kind of gambling that the version that we give live in the classroom will be as good as something that we could have recorded on video? I don't know if that makes any sense, but I'm just interested in your take, Gemma. Yeah, it does. There's a few things that are initially going through my head um so i'll see if i can garble them out loud um i wonder whether okay so my my gut reaction is i don't like the thought of showing a video of myself in a lesson so then i was thinking why do i not like the thought of that and then and i think the answer to that is the fact that if i have thought about it sufficiently to make a video then i can think about it sufficiently to say that in front of a class Mm. And I I would worry that showing a video would remove the interactive nature of having a face-to-face conversation, which is what I'm doing when I'm standing in front of the class. Um, So I suppose what my, my first question in return would be is why would we need to do that when we can just, when we, not don't like the word just, when we can think carefully about what we say and do it live now I understand what you're saying you're saying that the fact that you've rehearsed it and repeated it means that you've eliminated what I'm doing now which is the kind of waffling around it (laughs) (laughs) but um okay so in my now this is I'm I'm really I'm thinking out loud now this back to something I think we spoke about last time which is about reducing teachers workloads so that they have time to plan Um, because planning is the most important thing I mean if teachers aren't spending time doing loads of other nonsense then they can think about what they do in the class properly and part of that is thinking about the way you explain things Um, and I would say probably the biggest part of it more than finding resources and all sorts is thinking about the way you explain things because just like you said there are good and bad ways to explain things or better and worse ways to explain things um but that's what we should be doing and that's what we should be spending our time on. So I think um, that would be, I, I, I can see why it would be interesting as an idea, but I also think if we are given the time to um, 
plan properly and we and we accept especially us as leaders accept the fact that planning doesn't mean creating a fancy powerpoint it means yes. giving somebody time to think then we wouldn't need to do that anyway yeah it's it's, it's interesting i i have the the same reservations as you but then i was also thinking well two things really um the first is when um when matthew hood came on the podcast the the, the i think head teacher is his title head teacher of um, oak national academy he was talking about how one of the ways he'd love to see the re- oak resources used is as teacher cpd so there's never been a bank of like the entire maths curriculum taught before available to, to see his videos so you can watch teachers give explanations about how to expand brackets add fractions and so on and ho- like for me when I watch lessons that's when I learn the most when I'm lucky enough to watch a colleague teach and this is just seems to me an absolute golden opportunity to to if we're about to plan a lesson on something let's watch somebody else do it let's just call up this video let's watch them explain and can we take the best parts of that explanation and combine it with our own so I think even if we don't use videos directly in the classroom, the fact that there's now going to be a wealth of video explanations available, far more than there has been before, I think is a massive bonus in terms of improving our planning and hopefully speeding it up, but certainly making it better. That's the first thing. But the second thing I wanted to say, and this is what really got me thinking is, imagine if you if you had recorded yourself, Gemma, or if you'd got a, an explanation off Oak or whatever and you're playing it, it, all, it then frees you up in the classroom. And I just wondered whether there was something that we, we could then make use of that. Teachers could make use of the fact that the kids are watching the video. The teacher's then free either to wander around and perhaps have some system going where a child puts up their hand if they've, they've perhaps missed something and the teacher can just go and have a, a quiet word with them as, a, as opposed to having to stop the whole explanation in front of the, the whole class and so on. I just wondered if there was potential to kind of free us up as a resource whilst that explanation's happening. I, I don't want to dwell too much on this, but I just thought it was something interesting to, 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 to ponder. I don't know if you've, you've any anything else you want to add to that before we, be, before we move on. I'd be curious on. to know how that would work, though, because if you're going over to then talk to somebody else, then while you're talking to them, they're missing what? Yeah, yeah, good point. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, 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 my gut, sorry, my gut reaction, I, I keep using that phrase, apologies, is that I prefer the idea of using it in CPD using in the classroom also because then um i think it could contribute to this idea of um a critical discussion around the way we do things because i might watch something like an oak video or a video by anybody else and go actually i don't quite like the way that's worded because maybe Mm. with the way we even explain something as a department or you know if we if we're trying to introduce the use of algebra tiles for instance and they don't use it what is it that what's the same about their explanation, what's different, all those mm. kinds of discussions. Those are the kinds of things that are really important to a teacher because it helps you to um, form your, the way you teach in your, in your mind. And, and the sooner as a teacher you can get in your mind a kind of a coherent pathway through the mathematics and a coherent way through uh, and a coherent pedagogy, um, then the, the, the better teacher you will be rather than kind of seeing it as as lots of separate disjoint little things that you have to teach all over the place. So those kinds of discussions that contribute towards helping each individual teacher to form um, the, the, the kind of the whole the, the whole picture of their practice, those are all really valuable. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, right, I want to talk now, Gemma. You've talked generally about 
the the potential for this increased workload and having to make provisions for for students being off or whole year groups being off or whatever it may be. Um, I want to talk now about um, year groups um, and whether you're doing anything different than you would have done in the past with them. Um, so I want to start with perhaps year seven. I think this is a sensible place to start. Are you doing anything different or what are you doing in those first few weeks? So have you got any different assessments in there? Um, and as the year progresses, has your year seven scheme of work changed in any way? And chucked into the mix as well, before I forget to ask this, are you are you going for mixed attainment at the start of year seven? And if so, is that something new? So what, what's year seven looking like at the start and going forward, Gemma? Okay, so the scheme of work itself, I have done a big overhaul on full stop. Um, so that's not just for year seven, that's across the board. It's not uh, it's not throwing it out and starting again. But one of the things and I think I mentioned this before to you, one of the things about my scheme of work um, or, or any curriculum, I think, is that it has to be a, a kind of a, a living document, if you like, mm. to be able to change it and, and adapt it to make it work well with with the students in front of you. So. Um, I have made a few changes just to how generally year seven works, but those will be the case for every year seven from now on until we, we might uh, tweak things again. Um, we are we're doing things like um, we're introducing a little bit of algebra earlier, which people who've heard me talk about this will go, really? Because I, before I would say I, I always used to say well, we've got to concentrate on number for the whole of year seven and then algebra just kind of came in at the end. But what I've done is I've brought in a module on um algebraic thinking I've called it um, and it's not even explicitly algebra but it's based on something that it was a research head a few years ago where Don Stewart was there um, and I sat in Don Stewart's session and he said I'd never met him before and he said this is the point where I'm going to disagree with Gemma Sherwood and it was just <laughs> it was just after I'd written my first blog post on my scheme of work where I'd gone on about doing algebra too soon and all this kind of stuff um, and he was talking and, and in his session he was talking about the idea of bringing in the algebraic thinking rather than explicit algebra um, and I kind of ruminated on it over the subsequent years and I, I actually really like the idea of getting students to think about um, equality and unknowns but without formalizing algebra Yes. So we're going to be doing some of that it's just for a short bit of time earlier on in year seven. Um, and, and just, like just, just thing, sorry to interrupt. Problems and that kind of stuff. And sorry, go on. Yeah, sorry to interrupt, Jeremy. Just to clarify here, you don't follow any kind of like a white rose or a mathematics mastery. This is your own mm. year seven scheme of work that's kind of evolved over the years. Is that right? Yeah, so this is, yeah, this is the five-year scheme of work that um, I first introduced in, how, when would it be now? Probably about 2015, I think something like that um yeah I think so and it, it's it's kind of evolved over time with input from my department so we sit in meetings periodically and I'll go right what's working what do we need more time on what do we need to change what do you like what don't you like and we've kind of adapted and evolved it as as, as, as we've gone along um but yeah this this and, and I've done I've, I've done a few more things generally across the year groups where I've built in more time to uh, revisit certain topics and that kind of thing which is partly in response to what's happened at the moment because we've had to but also because it was becoming more apparent that we needed to generally um was so, there a temptation <laughs> Gemma to think right these kids have missed the last four or five months of, of year six or whatever it may be three four months of year six so let's start year seven 
by teaching them those year six topics? Was was that a temptation or we, we, what kind of brought about this decision to say, no, actually, algebraic thinking feels like the, the right place to start for these Oh, we're, sorry, we're not starting with algebraic thinking. That's coming about halfway through the year, but it's ah, right, okay. earlier than it would have done. Yes. We didn't do any algebra until the very end of year seven. Um, but as my scheme of work, no, the answer to the question is no, it wasn't a temptation to do that, but partly because... Uh, the way it's structured in year seven is there is we do revisit things from primary school. So our first unit is on place value. Um, and there are some students for who come to us still very weak in being able to write small and large numbers and those kinds of things. And there are some students who come to us who are very good on place value, but we can stretch them on place value because we can do all sorts of different types of work with them and we can we can make their knowledge and their understanding of the place value in the decimal system better. Um, so we so we have that idea going on. And then a bit later on in the year, we have a unit on fractions. And now my son is in, like I mentioned before, has just finished year five. Um, and he can now add, subtract and multiply fractions. They haven't done dividing, but I don't think that's back to stage two. I'm sure the primary teacher listening can correct me. Um, but he can do that. However, when I watch him, He's not what I would call fluent at it because he still has to kind of stop and think. So it would be very easy for me to um, assume that the students are coming to us from primary and because they've studied fractions and they've studied calculations with fractions that they can therefore do that. And I can just move past it. But I can see with my own eyes that although he knows what to do, he's by no means um just by no means fluent in it. And his understanding of why it works definitely needs improvement. So these are the kinds of things that underpin my scheme of work when they come to us in year seven, whereby I want them to, by the end of year seven, in theory, that I want them to be really excellent with number and different types of number, including things like uh, we do we do rational numbers and we introduce the concept of absurd and things like that and irrational numbers. So I want them to take what they've done at primary and really embed it but then also extend and go on to new topics as well so we we do things like um, the fundamental theorem of arithmetic in year seven because it extends what they've already learned about prime numbers but at the same time it gives us chance to really cement and embed what they've learned from primary on prime numbers this, so, this is interesting this Gemma so your your year seven scheme of work that you're running this year would have been the scheme of work that you would have run have had last year been a normal year. Would, would yes. that be fair to say? The changes you would yes. have made, you would have made anyway. You're not making any any changes based on the fact that kids have missed missed school. No, no change to the scheme of work. But what I, what we are doing is being prepared for the fact that we ha- will have more students who need more time on um, the kind of essentials in that scheme of work. Whereas before, we might have had a lot of students that could could move on to the I suppose you might call it the extension sections of it or the mm. the, the deeper uh, knowledge parts of it. We will, I expect we will have fewer students doing that. And when you say you're going to allow for the fact that kids are going to need more time on that, well, what does that look like practically? Is that is that mean your schema works a bit more flexible? You can spend a bit longer on certain units if needed, or is it is it is it differentiation in terms of resources? What, what does that look like, Gemma? We have really we have really long periods of time on each unit, um, and the reason we do that is so that if you have a group of so traditionally we set let me answer a previous question you've said to help me with this. Traditionally, we set our students when they come in broadly based on their key stage two results. 
Mm. Um, we're not doing that this year when they come into us because obviously we don't have these results. So they are going to be in completely mixed ability groupings. So traditionally, what we would have done is let's let's stick with that fractions unit, for instance, that I mentioned. We have about six or seven weeks on fractions. And traditionally, wow. yeah, but traditionally we would have had oh, well, maybe it's not six or seven. Maybe it's five or six, but it's still a long time. Yes. Um, traditionally, we would have had, say, uh, the, the students in the highest sets would have practiced the idea the ideas of uh, calculating with fractions and finding a fraction of amounts but then we might have done more complex ideas like three-fifths of a number is this what's the original number and um how many do, and and doing you know like a, a, ed salville's fraction problems where you have to identify the fraction shape that shaded and it can get really yes. complicated you can spend more time on those ideas with them and getting them to think mathematically in perhaps a deeper way but around the topic of fractions. At the end of the day, we know how to make fractions as hard as we want to, so we can do that. But at the same time, we will have students in one of the lowest sets who still have no idea how to simplify a fraction. So they will spend more time on something like that, and then they'll get onto your, your adding and subtracting when the students in the higher set are doing something um, more advanced, but still within the sphere of fractions. Um, I see. So you, you see, you've got all these resources anyway, but it's now they're not going to be setted. Again, I, I always struggle with this, Gemma. This is terrible. This, this is my, this is my bias, and I've I've had many conversations on this podcast with uh, Helen Hindle and Helen Williams and so on that I struggle with. I struggle just thinking about how to teach mixed attainment practically, just because I'm not experienced in it. Um, I, I've always taught setted. And I'm just like, what's your experience, Gemma? And do, do, is this going to work? So if you take this fractions unit, is it going to be the case of you've got all these resources up your sleeve and you're going to kind of get your colleagues to assess where the kids are at and then start differentiating accordingly? Does it make you nervous, this, like it would make me nervous? Or, or do you think it's going to work fine? No, it, it makes me really nervous. But at the moment, my yeah, because I'm like you, I have very, very limited experience on mixed attainment. Um my plan at the moment is to do some kind of assessment with them, probably around about um, half term, a bit before half term, and use that to do some kind of setting. Um, and I say some kind of setting because I try to be quite flexible with the idea of sets. I don't like the idea of having, you know, from set one down to set eight. The way our school works is they split the year group in half. So we have four sets in each half, which means there, there's quite a broad range of attainment or prior attainment, even within a set. Yeah. Um, but I like that. And I like that because one of the big arguments around mixed attainment is that it is more equitable and it gives students access to the same materials. Whereas you could say with setting, if you have, say, a set one and a set seven, those set seven kids will never even get the opportunity to meet the kind of stuff that yes. one kids do. And I understand that. I really do. Um, so my kind of middle ground with it is um, I need if I have students coming to me in maths where some can't even simplify a fraction and some can do the four calculations with them with their eyes closed I I I personally I don't know how to teach those kids in the same class 
and I don't know how I don't know how to do it well without mm. either losing the ones who can't even simplify or completely boring to tears the ones who yeah. can already do it all. And I it may be that it can be done, but I genuinely don't know how to do it. So rather than pretend that I do and do something substandard, I would rather um, get as soon as I possibly can to what we're used to and what we know we can do well. So because we only have four sets within those halves of the year group, there's quite a big spread in them. But what that does mean is that you do have a large number of students who are accessing um, the same material. So you have two sets, one, and, and that's 60 students. So all of those students are going to be accessing some, accessing some very challenging material. And if if those 60 students had been um, in maybe three um, linear sets, yes. you'd probably find that the ones in set three would never have met that material. So it's about raising expectations by not, by not having the set too strict. Let me play devil's advocate a little bit here, Gemma, which I'm a big fan of doing on this show. What's what's the argument against not just giving the kids the assessment day one so you can get them in these sets quickly and then do what, as, you, as you've said, do what you do best? I think um, it's, I don't think it would be very kind to them. I think they've been through a huge amount these last few months and to bring them in to a brand new school where not only are they really nervous about going to high school for the first time, but also they have not been in school, most of them, for the last six months. Um, And also this high school doesn't even look like it normally would look. And and it's all a little bit strange. And even the the, the teachers are are a bit confused with everything that's, that's different. To then sit them down and go, now do this test. And on the basis of this test, you are going to get put in a certain group. I don't think that's very kind. So yeah. I don't want to do that. I want to give them a chance to settle. I want to give them a chance. And also, I want a chance for the teachers to get to know these students and to get to yes. know the strengths and weaknesses because one test like that isn't even reliable at the best of times. So I want the teachers to kind of get a feel for who's struggling, who's who's finding it all really easy and all those kinds of things as well. Um, what just just one more thing on the mix of timing. So we had a number of questions in about this, and I've had a few emails as well. A lot of teachers are nervous about this because um, I, I would say whether it's the majority of schools, I don't know, but certainly a, a large proportion of schools will be doing mixed attainment in year seven who've perhaps done SETI before for the exact reason you've said, Gemma. There's there's no key stage two results to go 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 off. Um, are you going to support your staff in any special way for this? If you've got staff who, like us, have very limited experience teaching mixed attainment, well, what's what's the plan there? Because it's a different ball game, isn't it? And I, like you, would be incredibly nervous um, about doing it. Mm. So we've, like I mentioned before, we've got lots of resources already, and we've got mm. lots of resources of the kind that we would use with different groups of students. So um, my thought at the moment is to try and compile those more into one one place, one document where we can go. Um, You know, you're doing a lesson on such and such. You need to have these resources available. So if somebody is struggling, they can work on this. And if somebody is doing really well, they can work on this. Now, there's an added complexity there at the moment, which I haven't quite got my head around yet. And that's the fact that we are not allowed to give things out and take things in. We're not allowed to take books in. Yes. Um, so the first thought was that we would project everything onto the screen. But then if you've got a mixed attainment group where they're doing different activities, potentially yeah. that. So um, what I'm thinking at the moment is maybe um, putting together 
some small booklets for these early units, the ones where we, we, we will be mixed attainment. So just with these worksheets all in, and each student maybe could have a copy of this so that they have it with them all the time with their maths books. That's one thing I'm thinking. Yeah, I th- I th- again, it's, it's, we're going to come on to the practicalities. That that that's another thing that was running through my mind. The yeah, when you've got mixed attainment, the, the projecting on the board brings yeah bring, brings issues. Yeah, whole new set of issues with it um, mm-hmm. itself. Um, let, let's move on then, Gemma, to, to different year groups. Um, I've bundled kind of years eight to ten together just because I want to focus specifically on eleven and sixth form um, yeah. in a few in a, in a few minutes. Um, just anything on uh, years eight to ten that you're doing different that you haven't already mentioned um, in terms of the scheme of work and assessments and so on. Not particularly. I think the one thing that might be pertinent to bring in here is a few people have mentioned the idea of a recovery curriculum and what's my yes. interpretation of that. I have only heard this phrase on Twitter. I've not. It's not been mentioned at my school or any anything like that um, and it seems from talking to people that there are lots of interpretations of this phrase as there is with everything in education <laughs> but um, what I did at the just before the summer holiday was throughout lockdown what I've done is and um, the way my scheme of work uh, works in practice uh, in terms of recording things is we have one document which has all the units on um, and the content of each unit and then we have a separate document which is the medium term plan which is where you see where each year group is going to start a particular unit and, and when, when they're going to finish a particular unit. So within that, the teacher then teach the content. Um, but then what I did was at the, throughout lockdown, at the bottom of this medium term plan, I kept track of every um, topic that we assigned to the students over lockdown. So we, which was mainly um, recall and revision, but where we introduced new content, it was stuff that we knew they would be more likely to pick up remotely without us being there. Yes. So we couldn't stick, you know, religiously to the scheme of work because there were some things where you just look at the topic and you go, there is no way that group is going to be able to do that without me. So we so I kept a track of what I'd signed them, what I'd set them, which means that then just before the summer holiday, when I was kind of planning what we're going to do next year, I started off by looking at the things that I knew um, we had definitely missed out completely. Um, and where and so I made sure that I knew where each year group was going to start. So year eight, for instance, are starting with a unit that they would have done in the summer term of year seven. Um, but some of the content of that unit, we did assign them over lockdown. So we are starting from kind of about halfway through that unit, but it's each each teacher in front with the class in front of them has the responsibility to make sure that the stuff that was in theory covered over lockdown actually was. So you have to kind of weave that in and revisit it. And with some groups, you will find that they did it really well and they've got it and a little bit of extra practice is sufficient. But with other groups, you might have to spend a bit more time on it because there might be larger numbers of them who actually do any of the work and all these kinds of things so I planned the scheme of work to take all the students through the units that they haven't yet done including some that they would have done um, during lockdown but also to kind of weave in practice on everything else that in theory they didn't lock down in case they didn't (laughs) does that make sense makes perfect sense makes perfect sense um 
Well, let, let's turn now then to the, the, the well, potentially the, the tricky ones, although every year group's tricky in, in this situation. Um, year 11, Gemma, what, what do you think in there? Um, and in particular, we had a specific question on this. Uh, will Gemma recover topics from home learning? Will she manage to complete the curriculum with them? And if not, what will go? What, what are you thinking with year 11? So year 11, the current year 10s, uh, sorry, yeah, yeah, year 10s going into year 11, what we did in lockdown was try to make most of their time, very similar to what I just mentioned, about um, revisiting and revising, simply because we spend a lot of time doing that in year 11. So my approach was, if we do more of that over lockdown, then it gives us more time in year 11 to teach content that they have now missed. So I kind of structured it that way around on purpose to try and mitigate this problem as much as I could. So they are, in theory, if it, as much as I am completely unable to predict the future, but if they, if it does go to plan, we will finish everything in time um, because we will have, but we will have a shorter time at the end of the year in uh, that's normally classed as our revision time. So the scheme of work, normally all the content is done with our higher groups by the um, February half term. Mm. This time it's two or three weeks after that. So if it goes to plan, yes, it will all be covered and we'll have less time for revision. But in theory, they've done more of it over lockdown. So that won't be quite so necessary. That's, that's it's, the it's the in theory bits, the interesting you're going to get the situation where some kids have been because again I, I did a series of, of episodes about teaching from home and one of the things that was coming through from that was a lot of teachers were focusing on retrieval uh, during during um, during lockdown because it was deemed as as easier to to deliver from home than trying to teach new content which makes perfect sense and that's all well and good but then if you've got the kids who haven't been engaging in it for whatever reason they're going to have those gaps in their knowledge. And particularly if those new topics that you're introducing in year 11 are going to build upon stuff that they should already know and should have been retrieving. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, there's, there's no easy answer to this, but it's it's a potential problem, isn't it, Gemma, that, that could surface as, as you go yes. through year 11. But this links back to what we said earlier on, Craig, and that's that um, it's really important that if a teacher of anyone, any, any one of my groups says, they can't do this because they actually can't do such and such, that comes before it it's really important that the my teachers understand that it's okay for them therefore to go back and teach what needs to be taught um we don't we don't follow the scheme of work um religiously at the expense of actually teaching because that's the wrong way around all we can do is take the students that we have in front of us and teach them what they need to know there and then um so the best laid plans that i might have may end up being completely scrapped but if they are completely scrapped it's because they needed to be and that's the right thing to do and are you um just before we move away from year 11 and because you're going to have less time to dedicate to these retrieval opportunities perhaps in class than you would have done in a normal uh, year 11 are you going to do anything different with homeworks or low stakes quizzes or anything like that to, to build in opportunities for retrieval or or Again, is there simply no capacity to do that? All our homework is is revision at the moment. So uh, I mentioned before that we subscribe to Hegarty Maths and we mm. set all of our homework on that. Um, well, actually, that's not quite true. So the departmental guidance is that you each year group has two homeworks a week. And I say um, at least one of them 
has to be the original Hegarty maths. Um, the other one I then leave open to the teachers to do what they feel best. So some teachers choose to do all of it like that. Some teachers sometimes choose to give a worksheet on a particular topic because they mm. want students to continue working on something that was done in class, for instance. But that's up to their um, professional judgment. So um, I expect what will happen is that we will actually just spend pretty much all our homework doing revision. Yes. Um, the fact that we do it on this platform means that we can monitor it and we can see who has and hasn't done it and how long they've spent on it and all those things, which is really useful for us then to be able to have conversations with students um, and to be able to talk to them about what they're struggling with and what and, and what they, what help they need from us and those kinds of things. So I think, yeah, most I think I think homework will be hugely important in that respect this year. And that's the other message that, uh, that part of something we need to that part of the message we need to give to the students as well, which I forgot to mention earlier, is that all, along with the mess, the, the idea of we of conveying that we've got this um, as your teachers. I also need them to understand that they've, they've got to work hard in this. Yes. So they can't just sit back and go, oh, yeah, it's all back to normal. Yes, this has happened. And yes, it's been really difficult and strange and we can put it right and we can get you um to learn what you need to learn but you have to put in your side of it and you have to work hard with us so that's an equally important part of the message that we need to convey to our students as well let's turn our attention now to sixth form Gemma and a particular question that came in um how is Gemma and her team supporting the very weaker students that might not have ordinarily got on the course yeah, so um, there's a couple of things there. So this one's specifically relating to the new year 12, isn't it? Um, mm. We have, our sixth form lessons, we have nine hours a fortnight taught, but there is a 10th hour a fortnight, which is not timetabled with a teacher. So that's classed as your maths, your specifically maths study period. Um, they, the students, because of the rules around movement within the school and things like that, the students have to stay in the classroom that they've previously been in for their maths lesson for that session. Um, so one thing we can do is we, wherever we have a member of staff who might be available at that time, we can help them during that study period. So we've got this little bit of time potentially built in that we can use um, specifically to help people. So um, that's I think will get used more often than mm. it has done in the past. Um, the other thing that I often do with students who we identify as struggling when they come into year 12 is set them a kind of a, for want of a better phrase, a, a catch up course um, on our online platform. So topics that we identify that they are weak in, which are therefore causing a hindrance to them accessing what they need to do at A-level, we we set them these over a, a period normally up until about the October half term and they have to work on these independently and then come to see us with problems with it um, and that that does a good job generally because it gives them the extra time they need on the the fundamentals and the basics that they haven't quite grasped yet very often it's a lot of algebraic manipulation and those kinds yes. of ideas so I again I, I at the moment like I mentioned with the the year sevens I expect there will just be more students that we have to do things that we already do with fewer students. I think there'll be more of them this time. Have you seen, in terms of numbers, more people signing up to do A-level in year 12, Gemma? I haven't seen the numbers yet. I don't know, actually. Um, 
I'll I'll find out for you and and let you know for your notes if you want. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine. It'll just it would be interesting, wouldn't it? Like if the logic would suggest that if 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 GCSE grades are are up on previous years that and schools have qualifying criteria in there, perhaps more students will um will sign up to do A level. And speaking as someone who's, who's taught A level for many years, I I can say hand on heart, the bigger the class, the more challenging I certainly find it because you have that you have that bigger range of abilities or, or prior knowledge that's in there. And whenever you're introduced, like every A-level topic you're introduced is built on prior knowledge from GCSE. And if it's, if it's not there, it just makes that teaching so much more difficult. And I, I can just see that being something that's going to be potentially a bigger problem than it normally is this this coming year for year 12. I, I don't know if you agree with that. Yeah, no, I think you might be right there. Um, we're, we're used to quite big class sizes. We've, we generally have approaching 20 in our A-level mm. classes um, and they are more mixed ability than any GCSE class yes for that very reason because we don't we don't set at A-level it would be impossible to with everything else in the way the, the, the timetable works so yeah there, there will be I, I, I fully anticipate there will be more time spent on certain things than others but also the good thing there is the fact that a lot of the very um, a lot of the most able A-level mathematicians are able to pick up and work on things with less teacher input anyway. So it might just be that we have to change a little bit of our focus, especially at the start. Um, and we, of course, we're not going to neglect students at the higher end, but we might need to expect them to be more independent. Yes. And um, last question, just on, on A-level, thinking in particular about um, about year 12. Um, I know many schools or colleges will do some form of assessment reasonably early on into year 12. That's almost kind of a bit of a, a qualifying thing to say, right, OK, if you're struggling on this assessment, it, often it's based on prior GCSE knowledge. Perhaps we need to rethink whether A-level, this course is right for you and so on and so forth. And um, do you do anything like that? And, and will you be doing anything different in terms of perhaps having those conversations with students who perhaps A-level isn't quite right for them? I think I, I think that's all going to run exactly as it always did. So, yeah, we do have an induction assessment. Um, and in in principle, continuation on the course is predicated on doing well in this induction assessment. Um, and by well, I mean, you, you, it, it's not like you have to get a ridiculously high score or anything. Yes. But this is the this is the fundamentals. This is the stuff that you need to know. Um, so, yeah, there may well be that we have to have more more of these discussions where we say is a level math the right thing for you but I think it's really important because if you're somebody's going to spend two years studying something you don't want them to then have failure at the end of it because that's no good for anybody so it's not about kicking people off a course or anything negative like that it's about finding the right course for people so mm. that they enjoy their time in sixth form and so that they succeed um so I think that will be important. But there's, there's actually something that popped in my head when you were talking before, Craig, about um, people are worried that they'll have more students come on to their course that are less able. Yes. Here's what I want to, I almost want to ask a question playing devil, devil's advocate back. <laughs> if you have faith in your teacher assessed grades or your, sorry, your centre assessed grades, then that shouldn't be the case. Because if you say, if you accept students with a grade seven and above and students have been predicted by their teachers and by their centre at grade seven, then they ought to be um, as good as you expect them to be. If we're yeah, I, I, think, 
I think you're absolutely right. I guess it comes down to that, that when you're making those, those center assess grades, if, if you're thinking, well, if, if the exam goes right and they have a good day, yeah, I can probably see them getting a seven here. So yeah, let, let's, let's go for, let's go for a seven. And then it's just that classic thing that we know that GCSE, you can get a seven in GCSE whilst at the same time being pretty weak at the fundamentals you need for A-level, whether mm-hmm. it's algebra, the number stuff and so on. So I can just see, just perhaps more of those conversations happening than perhaps would have done in previous years with with students who, yeah, for, for whatever reason, um, their perhaps algebraic and numeric fundamentals aren't quite there. So that perhaps more of those conversations will need happening. But yeah, yeah potentially. Who knows? But I think that you ha- we have to be prepared that we um, provide them with materials and resources to work on those. And then yes. if it still doesn't improve, then yes, you need to have those conversations because you can't, it's it's not fair for somebody to, to let them continue on a course where they're just going to bomb. It's not fair. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, right, I want to turn our attention now, Gemma, to some practicalities. Now, these may be short answers, they may be long answers, I've, I've no idea. So let's start with this. Um, classrooms, what, how have your classroom layouts changed? The layouts haven't changed at all. So we have all our classrooms in, well, all our math classrooms in rows, um but uh but the, the tables are all separate so two 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 all the way through yes. it's pretty standard like that um that is a conscious choice um and we do that because everybody's facing the front which means everybody uh, it, it's easier for everybody to pay attention uh, it's easier for the teacher to see everybody but it also means if you ask them to work in twos or fours that's also very quick and easy um so that's not changing there are other areas of the school um, and other subjects where that doesn't happen. So there are going to be other classrooms that do have to change. And by nature of the way um, the, the the school works is changing, um, that will affect other teachers of other subjects more. So we're, we're doing what a lot of schools are doing. And we're instead of a maths department, that's now the year eight area. Um, and the humanities department is now the year seven area. So all the, the students in year eight will stay in that area and they will move within the classrooms in that area for almost all of their lessons so um, there, there are going to be changes for teachers of other subjects more so than there are for teachers of maths in terms of the and, and just to clarify Gemma when you say about your layout in rows but with the desk separate is that kids sat kind of two to a desk yes. normally or is it and will, will that stay uh, is that the staying kind of sat in pairs are they yes yeah so that's Got how it. we're having it yeah Got it. Fantastic. Um, well, right. Well, let's move on then to that other thing you've alluded to. This, this, uh, and uh, the way it was phrased on Twitter is nomadic teachers. I like mm-hmm. this. So a question that came in, uh, I, like a lot of others, have lost my classroom for September and be traveling around school to different year group bubbles. As a result, I will pro- possibly be around five minutes later for the lesson that I would have done normally, how can I ensure a smooth focus start for pupils? Now, this is a big one for me. I remember I used to have um, an A-level lesson um, over in the sixth form center. And then I had, to, I had a real ropey year nine class and they were next they were next to each other, period three, period four. And I knew I, I, I had to leg it. Like I had to absolutely yeah. leg it across to get there to, because if I lost them at the start this year nine, if they were already in the classroom or messing around on the corridor, it was going to be a tough old lesson. Now this, this is going to be the norm, right? We're going to have teachers it's going to be great for the step count and the fitness but it's going to be potentially problematic in terms of these focus starts to the lesson so is this something that is you you and your team are going to encounter and have you got any thoughts on it Gemma? It is indeed yeah so our year 11 classes um, are completely the other side of the site to our year 7, 8, (laughs) 9 classes for instance Um, and we have quite um, a, 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 
a spread out site as well with different buildings and different blocks all around a central uh, kind of playground area. So, yes, there is going to be nomadic is absolutely the word for it. I personally haven't had because I'm part time, I haven't had my own classroom for quite a few years now. So I'm kind of used to being a nomadic teacher, but within the maths department. Yes. So that's been not too difficult at all. But the one thing I've always done is had, you know, um, in schools, you get those plastic trays. Yes. And the shallower ones. I always have one of those shallower trays that has my pencil case in it um, with my own kind of pens and whatever else I might need. Um, whiteboard pens, um, an interactive whiteboard pen in case you get, you get somewhere and there isn't one in the classroom. Um, any traditionally any worksheets I might need or anything else like that. And I've just had it in this tray and it, on the desk in my office. So then I just wherever I go to, um, I have this tray of stuff. So what will happen is everybody is going to have one of these trays of stuff and you have to and everything is just in there and you part this tray around with you it's going to be hard than it just with like class sets of calculators and all that kind of thing or, or even just like textbooks and or even just like maths exercise but you, you can't just have them in the back of your classroom or anything exactly like that yeah anymore. so there's a lot of things here so let's go first of all calculators um our school policy is that students have to bring all their equipment with them and we have a very strict equipment list um, which includes the specific calculator that we all use. And we ask for them all to have the same calculator because we put the emulator on the board yeah. so that we can all, it's really hard. I remember when I started teaching, it's, I mean, you've, I'm sure you've experienced this, really hard to teach kids how to use a calculator when they've all got different versions. Oh, it's having so a nightmare. Having, everybody having the same calculator and you being able to put it on the screen and go, you do this, is, makes life a million times easier. So they've all got to have certain equipment, which includes their calculator, their um uh, compass, protractor, ruler, pencil, all that kind of stuff. Um, and the equipment list even goes down to they have to have a set of different um, hardness of pencils for their art lessons and these kinds of things. And They're these lists, to... Gemma, sorry, Gemma, these lists, this isn't this isn't something that's been brought in just for for this year with with all the issues with with hygiene and, no, and wiping stuff down. this has been so... like it for a while. All they've done is um, added things to the list, like every student has to have a little bottle of hand sanitizer in a packet, right? Because we can't be handing those things out. And, so they've added to the list and they've also, um, we have traditionally have not allowed students to have their bags in classrooms with them. So they've had to, um, at transition times at break and lunch, go to their lockers and get whatever equipment they needed for the next set of lessons until the next break time. But that's all being scrapped. So they have everything in their bags with them all day long. I mean, and they're doing things like for days they have PE, they're going to come in their PE kit so that there's no changing and those kinds of things. Right. So you know, they're, they're, they're minimising um, any kind of um, interactions that we have to have with the students in that respect um, and any kind of interactions that the students have to have with each other that are unnecessary. Um, so that's the equipment. Just on that, Gemma, sorry to interrupt you, just with the calculator, if you have a kid who's forgotten their calculator, which is inevitable to, to happen, mm -hmm. um, are you allowed to hand one out as long as it's kind of wiped clean? What, what's the guidance there? Well, the guidance says no, we're not. But um, the one thing I, I do actually need to double check this with the SLT. The one thing they have said, for instance, is the textbooks. And this, I am answering your question just in a roundabout way. Um, if we use textbooks. They have to stay in the classroom that that group is based in. So imagine I've got my year 11 group. They're always going to have year 11 maths in that one classroom within the year 11 yes. area. So I could keep a set of textbooks there. 
But when I take those textbooks in, they then have to be left in a pile at the front of the room for the cleaners to disinfect at the end of the day. So what I need to double check is whether or not I'm allowed to have small set of reserves of things like calculators for which the same process would apply. Yes. I need to I need to double check that one. Flipping out, flipping out. Well, well, that's equipment. What about this issue of this um, this smooth start, Gemma? Can you see that being an issue if the teachers are uh, inevitably right, arriving a bit later than they would have done normally? Yeah. So um, they're not allowed to queue up outside the classroom for obvious reasons. So they are going to have to go into their classrooms and sit down and wait for us, which we would never normally have allowed, <laughs> which obviously makes people very nervous. But what they what the school is doing is um, in every area, so let's take the the year 11 area, which is the former science block, there is going to be a member of SLT and one of the heads of house, which is like our heads of year because we have vertical tutoring, one of the heads of house are based in that area, in the office in that area. So um, they will be monitoring the classrooms and the corridors and everything while the teachers come from wherever the teachers have been previously. And so, I mean, sorry, go on, keep going. So, so that's the kind of the way of trying to minimize messing around in the classrooms while they Mm. wait for us. What we have always done is at the start of lessons to kind of as a settler and while the teacher logs on or anything else that needs to happen, we have used um, in year seven and part of year eight for some groups, numeracy ninjas booklets. And then for um, the rest of year eight and all the other years upwards, we've taken from maths box, they have these grids of 20 questions and we've made those into booklets. So what would normally happen is the class would come and queue up and the teacher would let them in and they would hand the booklets out in rows. So they would just put a, a, a set of booklets at the front row and those kids would just pass them back and then get started. And then they have five minutes at the start of the lesson where they work on these booklets while everything settles. Um, what we're going to do now is the, the, the kids will keep the booklets attached to their maths exercise books so that when they get to the classroom, they have to sit and open their booklet and start on the next page while they wait for the teacher. I see, I see. And it's... hopefully the SLT, member of SLT and the head of house that are there will be able to kind of keep an eye on all the rooms in that transition period. Jeez, it's it's tricky, isn't it? Because you get that start to the lesson right. It's if it's focused and stuff, it can set you up for a great lesson. If if it if it goes wrong again, as I was mentioning before, I've walked into an absolute yeah, like like a zoo sometimes when I mm-hmm. when I'm arrived late to a lesson, it's all kicking off. It's it's a real struggle getting it back back on track. So that that sounds like a really really sensible approach, and it's one of those things. Once what's what's interesting about this, and we'll talk about handing stuff out um, next. But because we are kind of reducing our ability to keep handing stuff out all the time, once that initial investment has been made in terms of the time getting this booklet together and giving it to the kids, it may end up saving time, mind it, Gemma. The fact that the kids have got this stuff ready with them, they it's the same routine at the start of the lesson, get this booklet yeah. out, work through it and so on. Once the kids get into this routine, it might not be too bad in terms of time loss. Would you agree? Yeah, no, I think so. They know the routine anyway, because they always do it in our math mm. lessons. So apart from the New Year sevens who will need to learn it um, and in, in this unusual way, that that's how we always start our lessons. Um, so, yeah, in theory, they know what they've got to do. Whether, whether whether or not 
without the eye of the teacher gazing over them, they actually do it is another is another matter. So <laughs> we shall see. We shall see. I think there is Nick Craig with this, this start of the year. There is so much that we don't know how it's going to play out. Yeah. We don't know what to expect. And um, my approach generally with anything in life that I don't know about is to go, there's no point in me thinking about it and worrying about it too much now. I can plan as much as I can, but past planning um, I have to just wait and see how it plays out and respond as it does because there's no point in me worrying myself about it because I can't change anything until it happens. Yeah, I think that's that's super sensible advice for, for all times, but yeah, particularly for this time, Gemma. Um, absolutely. Um, just in terms of books, um, another question that was asked specifically, and I think this is a really interesting one. Uh, what's your department's take on collecting exercise books or worksheets in for marking? I've got my own reservations about collecting 32 books from 32 different households, but what's your take? We have a whole school policy at the moment of not to collect in any books at all. So... Um... Anything that does come in from students, let's say, for instance, I were to hand out a worksheet and I wanted to take that in, it Mm. would have to wait for 72 hours before I was allowed to then do anything with it. So that automatically makes the concept of taking things in, even our exit tickets, which, as you know, Craig, I love to bits. Absolutely. It it, it kind of defeats the object of doing them, really, because the whole point of an exit ticket is that I mark it. I go through them and mark them immediately and I can use that to plan for my next lesson. Yes. I can't do that now. So um, there's there's, there's really no point. So that feeds into another question I know we've had about um, assessing students. So I won't go too much into that. But back to the idea of taking things in. We're not taking in books. But we never really did anyway for quite a few years because we did the exit tickets instead. Um, it will affect other departments more than us in the school, the departments who still do take in books. Um, but I, yeah, I, 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 I think the thing to bear in mind with it, though, is there will be a lot of people who are used to taking in a marking books. Mm-hmm. And um, this to them will, they'll be very nervous about it. And they'll yes. probably be, be worried about how they're going to see how the kids are doing. And my, the one thing I can say is really totally genuinely, since I stopped taking in books, I have not learned any less about the students in my class. When we in, when we implemented exit tickets, I actually felt like I knew more about the students in my class and what they could do because I was seeing it more frequently. Um, but yeah, it make it has not made a, a scrap of difference at all to my knowledge of um, how those what those students can and can't do and how they learn. So really, don't worry about it because it's it's not actually a big deal. It's fascinating you say that, Gemma. I've I've been thinking this myself, that one potential positive to come out for this is those schools that insist upon triple marking and, you know, marking every piece of classwork and so on, because it simply can't happen anymore. It'll be interesting to see, yeah, that, I mean, my my suspicion will be no kid will suffer and that teachers will be planning better lessons because they'll have more time. And as you say, they'll find other ways to know their kids better yeah. than they would do from spending, you know, four hours on a Sunday afternoon marking a pile of books. If so, this is the death of marking books, then that's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> fingers crossed, fingers crossed. Um, right, well, you, you, you've mentioned AFL. I want to come on to that now. Um, 
as as we've discussed before, you're a big fan of exit tickets, as you've mentioned there. That's something that perhaps simply can't happen or it's going to certainly lose its effectiveness because you can't respond in the moment. But just generally about AFL, um, how's, how's it going to work, Gemma? So a question that came in here, as a class teacher, we won't be able to walk around the desks like we normally would. Mm-hmm. Apart from mini whiteboards and the odd snapshot of homework, how will you be able to assess students? Well, what's your take on that? Okay, so... Um... The interesting phrase there for me was the odd snapshot of homework. So because all of our homework, like I mentioned before, is done on our pl- on the platform, mm. um, we see everything that they've done uh, yes. all the time. So it's not an odd snapshot. It's actually a really comprehensive overview of how they've managed to work outside of class. So that's one thing. And that's really, really useful. Um, the next thing then um, is generally in the classroom how will we see it and you're probably going to love this Craig but what we're going to start doing is making much more use of multiple choice questions nice. uh, yeah, I'll send you the money in the post Gemma there, <laughs> you're welcome so we um we are we don't have we used to have in the kids planners colored pages red yellow yes. and green um and then that got scrapped a few years ago so we don't have anything like that but all I'm going to get them to do which was a, a very pragmatic suggestion from one of my department is at the back of a maths book we're just going to get them to write in the corner of four pages a b c d really in big nice. letters so all they have to do is hold up the relevant page a b c or d and we can put the questions up on the board then um, and then because they're holding it up in their book it means no, and nobody's turning around they're all facing us in rows it means that they're not cheating and we can get a very quick overview of the misconceptions in the class which should in principle work the same as the exit tickets because we then use that information to decide what to do next and we can do it at any point in the lesson so we could we could do a few examples and maybe set them to practice for a couple of minutes and then go right now answer this question and hold up your, your letters and we can see there and then whether or not we need to spend more time on a certain aspect or give some more examples on a certain aspect of what we've been doing. We can do them at the end of the lesson as an overview as well. So um, that is going to be the main way that we assess students. But um, it's going to work on the same principles of the exit tickets in the idea of um, informing planning and informing next steps. Absolutely. Now, you've, you've teed me up here, Gemma. You might as well go and have a cup of tea here whilst I, whilst I go off on one. Yeah, um, you, you, you're absolutely right. Like, I, I'm ridiculously biased, so it'd be no surprise to anybody here. But I think that's where multiple choice questions or diagnostic questions, whatever we call them, will, will come into their own. I mean, lots of teachers will use them regularly as part of their practice. But the fact that you don't need to give out equipment, the fact that... You don't need to be collecting anything in. And the fact that you're getting that instantaneous response and information about the specific nature of misconceptions, I, I think they are perfectly suited for this. And um, one, one tip I'd give to teachers, I think it's a brilliant idea writing the ABCD um, in the, the pages of the exercise book. Um, what teachers will find if they haven't used them before is that if you've got 20 kids in your class, 25, whatever it is, and they hold up a load of exercise books, it, it can be quite hard to distinguish between the A's, B's, the C's and D's. So if they can colour them in any way, like if they have a thing like the, just indicate that the page that has the A on, just put a bit of red on there, the page that has the B, a bit of blue and so on, just makes it a lot easier for a teacher just to kind of pick out the differences um, a bit between them. But I think that's that's I think that'll work really, really well. But then again, I, I would say that. And what about mini whiteboards, Gemma? Are they, are they just a non-starter in, the, in this day and age now? Yeah, we can't go there because of the whole having to disinfect everything and take. It's a shame, isn't it? Yeah, we just can't go there. It is a shame. 
Um, I'd love it if we could add buy your own mini whiteboard and pen to the equipment list. Really, yeah, we can't be doing that. Um, um, the, oh, sorry, go on, Gemma. Sorry, go on. Oh no, go on, go on if you, I was you keep going. Say on the um, multiple choice things. One of the other, one of the members of my department very successfully does it with um, holding up fingers, so he gets yes. put their heads down on their desk, so they're not cheating, and then hold up one, two, or three, or four fingers. Um, and which he did point out, you have to be careful which fingers they hold up for <laughs> one and two. But yeah, um, that that also works very well. But it's all about the routine and it's about training them into a routine. And if they if you train them into how you want it done, it doesn't waste time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I guess the other just kind of more informal part of AFL that I find fascinating um, is just whilst you're wandering around the room and kids are working on things and it's going to be a lot more difficult, isn't it? Just to kind of like lean your head over and see what kids are working on or even a child puts their hand up and says, miss or sir, can you come and help me with this? How's that going to work, Gemma? Is that something you've thought about? I have. And this is another one where I'm going to have to say I don't really know the answer yet, particularly. The one thing I am thinking of doing is um, we, we know our students very well. And as long as we talk as a department, which we do, um, we can identify which students we know are more, are more likely to struggle, um, which students are maybe less likely to want to put their hands up. And we can do simple things like sit them nearer us so that if they mm. do want to ask a question, they don't feel like they're having to call across the whole of the classroom, for instance. Yes. Um, the ones who are on the front row are the ones will be it will be easiest for us to actually talk to. So we can be quite judicious in the way that we do our seating plans in that respect. Um, and also it's this is a huge part for me tied up in creating the culture you want in your classroom and training the, the students in the way you want your classroom to be. So um I make a point of trying to ask a question across maybe two or three lessons, ask a question of every single student. And so in smaller classes, you can do it every lesson. You can ask everybody a question. And now I don't do it randomly with anything like lolly sticks because I want to use my own judgment as to mm-hmm. who uh, as to whom I ask what. Um, and my students in my classroom get used to the fact that they know that Miss is going to ask them something and they need to be ready to answer because they're not going to get away with not answering it. Um, but they also know that if I say to them, um, ask me, uh, put your hand up if you have something that you want clarifying, then they know that it's safe to ask me that because I spend a lot of time practicing this with the class. And at first, the more confident students will do it, but you gradually kind of ask questions on the less confident students and draw them in until eventually those less confident students feel happier to ask you questions directly and they may and they need to know that it's a safe environment to do so they need to know that they're never going to be laughed at that they're never going to be ridiculed and all those things um and it takes time but it's it, it's it's all um wrapped up in creating the culture in the classroom that you want so you have to make it a safe place for students to ask and answer questions absolutely absolutely um just a couple more things just on the practicalities uh Gemma I thought this was a a really interesting uh, question it came in a couple of times actually um what things or practices have been learned during lockdown that will be continued is there anything positive that you've found that's come out of um, having to teach students from home that you think you could bring in now kids are coming back um I'll tell you what I've really appreciated actually is how well um 
you can use technology to supplement what you do. Now, I know I've, there's been lo- there's been people talking over lockdown about how um, a good online curriculum does everything you need it to do. And I don't agree with that. So I don't think that technology um, and, and, and online provisions are in themselves um, a replacement for a teacher in a classroom and all the interactions um, and all the, the humanity that comes with that. But what I do think is that um, they can be a very good supplement. And I've come to appreciate actually just how how much they can be a supplement um, and how much more I can utilise things like video resources and, um, and, and and the different kinds of uh, ways that we can give students. Let me start again. Uh, the fact that, for instance, the video resources, we can assign um, videos to students at home to go over stuff we've done in the mm-hmm. classroom. And just the fact that they get to think about things again um, makes them more likely to remember what they've been learning. And it's just, uh, um, we all know that you, what you spend more time thinking about is the things that you will then learn properly. So um, I, I, I definitely like the fact that we can maybe make more use of technology to supplement what we do. Um, but I'd really struggled with that question apart from that, because I I, I thought that generally um, lockdown was suboptimal. So, yes. so I, I really, really struggled to think of a better answer than that, I'm afraid. No, it's, it's a good answer. And I asked um, in my series, of, I think 12 episodes I did, um, interviewing teachers who were teaching from home one of my questions was um what what have been the benefits of, of lockdown has there been anything and i think nine out of the 12 said no nothing at all it's um as you say suboptimal is a, is a mm. really really good way of uh, of describing it and um, last question just on this one Gemma, and i thought this was an interesting one as well and um, are things really going to be that different after the first couple of weeks to settle everything down well what's your obviously we can't see into the future Gemma, but what's your instinct is is this year going to be unlike anything we've ever seen or is it just going to be a weird first couple of weeks and then it will be just normal again um i don't think it'll be normal again but i think we will get used to it and we will adapt to it and we will make it work within the constraints that we find ourselves and though and even if the way things are running in september continues for the whole year by the end of the year we will know exactly what we're doing and so will the students and we will just be used to it and we'll know how to make it work um whether or whether or not that's um settling down whether or not that's a, yeah so i'm not saying i think it's going to end up being the same what i think is that we will adapt to it yeah i, I think i think so too it'll be fascinating to revisit yeah conversations like this in in six months time and just because at the moment it feels so there's so many unknowns as you've uh, mentioned um several times and during the conversation and it'll be fascinating to see whether as teachers and our students just kind of fit into this and, and we make the best of it or whether it is a, a continual struggle. I, I certainly hope it's the former. And um, just that last kind of section I want to talk on, talk about this before we just move on to something different um, is working with your team. Now you mentioned at the start of this conversation, Gemma, the kind of messages you're going to be given at the start of the year to your, your team um, about expectations and so on. But we had, we had a question in, uh, I assume from a head of department that I wondered if you wanted to add anything extra to and it's it's this i wonder how we as leaders can best support the people in our teams how can we support them and their expectations new routines and anxieties to allow them to fully support our students and teach their best lessons in unfamiliar circumstances is there anything you'd like to add on what you said previously 
Um, okay, so I, I, yeah, I, re I remember this question. I made a few notes here. I said, first of all, um, you need to make sure that everybody has everything they need on a really practical level. So make sure they've got their tray or their box or whatever it is with all the kits that they need so that they don't have to worry about moving around from lesson to lesson. Mm -hmm. So really practically, you can reduce stress like that. Um, secondly, um, I don't, we need to make sure we don't expect people to do lots of time consuming, complicated things. So one that popped into my mind, for instance, is, um, People spoke on this Twitter thread about uploading uh, PDFs of work and maybe annotating over it to market. I, to my mind, um, and I've tried this, annotating over any kind of PDF or anything is so time consuming just to do it to one piece of work. And if you've got to do that for 32 pieces of work, it's going to take people forever. And that is going to be hugely stressful. And I think we need to not try and overcomplicate what's already going to be a very complicated time for people. Um, people have got to get their heads around a new way of working. And that in itself can be stressful enough without us adding extra into it that doesn't need to be there. So I think we need to simplify everything as much as we possibly can um, so that people can just focus on making their day-to-day -day lessons work really well. Um, there was there was the phrase in that tweet that said about um, helping people to teach their best lessons, and mm -hmm. I, I was I thought that wording was really interesting. Teach their best lessons. Now I have to apologise to the tweeter if I've misinterpreted this, but one thing that struck me when I read that was. Um, I don't want anybody in my team to feel like they are not producing their best lessons through anything that I've done. Um, and what yes. I mean by that is um, they might be used to doing a whole heap of things in their lessons that they now can't do. And if they feel like, therefore, their lessons are not good enough, then I've done something wrong because there is no reason why the lessons in the new way of doing them cannot be just as good as what we've done before it's just different so they need to know that whatever they do now is is good enough and it's it, it yes it's different but that's okay and our kids are still learning and they're still going to be fine so I need to make sure I don't put any expectation on my staff in terms of well how are we going to make sure it's just like it was before because I that, that would be unfair of me Makes perfect sense. Very, very sensible um, advice as ever, Gemma. Um, final question just on this before we do move on to something different. Um, we mentioned before how you, you've got a new NQT starting and it's going to be a whole different world for them and the struggles there with, with trying to join, join a profession that's in this period, period of turmoil. What about if we've got some new heads of department listening? So this may be somebody who's been promoted internally and it's their first time running a department. Or as is often the case, it's somebody who's joining a new school as head of department. And of course, we've got to remember, they may not even have been around their school, perhaps at all, or certainly not since interview and so on. Any advice at all about how a new head of department may may cope or, or thrive in these, these tricky circumstances? This is potentially a huge question, so I'll try and keep it quite brief. Um, <laughs> there are being a head of department is so very different to being a teacher in in especially in the uh, respects of administration. There are lots of things that happen throughout the school year that you don't realise happen because your, heads of, your head of department does it or sorts it. 
Um, and when you become a head of department, you suddenly you get all these emails from people going, right, I need such and such a document now. And well, can you respond to this from the uh, the Senko and do this, that and the other? And you're like, oh, man, I don't know. What, what, who's that? Who have I got to send this to? <laughs> There's all of this going on. So the first in your first year of being a head of department, the best thing you can do, I would say, from an administration point of view, is get um, a diary with days on and or even if you do it on the computer and keep a track of the things that happen that you know are going to happen yearly or every time and who you had to send it to and what you had to do so that next year you can look back and go, oh, yeah, I, that, that was what happened then. And then you don't. And then in the second year, you don't feel quite so much like you're floundering and quite so much like you have no idea what's going on. <laughs> and after a while, you just kind of do it automatically because you know everybody and you know what has to happen. But it, but it takes a good couple of years to get to that point. So the best thing you can do is keep track of it. Otherwise, you'll find yourself in the same position in the second year going off. Oh, I can't remember what I had to do there and this that, and the other. So on a practical level, yes, get a diary, keep a list of it. And also what I do is I have a notebook and every single thing that I have to do, anything that anybody asks me to do, I write in my notebook and I cross it off once it's done. Um, because it's so easy to forget all these little things that have to happen. Um, especially when you're you get told something quickly as you're walking down the corridor and then you're about to teach a lesson and, and it just goes straight out your head because you're not really thinking about it properly. So keep a notebook with you and just write absolutely everything down and just get rid of it when it's done. I mean, I'm so I'm so sad. I've even got something where if I if I think of something that needs to be done, I then and I and I've just done it. I then write it in my notebook and pass it off just so I feel like I'm productive. But you don't have to go that far. That's just me being a bit weird. Um, but yeah, keep just keep a track of everything. That's really important. And then more generally, apart from the kind of practical administration, um, take time to get to know everybody in your department um, uh, and get to know what people um, are, what their strengths are. Um, I, don't, I don't like to use the word weaknesses because actually they're all really good, but some people prefer to do things to others mm. um, and, and, and use people in their strengths. So you don't have to do absolutely everything. I've got one of my one of my teachers who's on UPS3 coordinates the um, UKMT math challenges, for instance. Um, and that's that's his responsibility and it's his thing that he does every year and he's brilliant at it because he's really good at just making sure everything gets done and organized um so there's little things like that where you just because you're head of department doesn't mean you actually have to physically do everything you just have to make sure it gets done um and there are people in your team who will be absolutely brilliant at doing certain things um, and use them to their strengths but just at first take time to get to know them so that you can identify that Really good advice. And what's nice about that, Gemma, is that's good advice in this circumstance, but also just just good advice generally. And I'd, I'd direct listeners as well to um, a podcast I did a few years ago now with Ollie Lovell, who talked about um, kind of practical conversations to have with with a department to get to know them, get to know what they, they like, where their pain points are and so on. So there's, there's lots of good advice out there uh, for new heads of department or prospective heads of department and so on. That's that's fantastic, that, Gemma. Can I add one um, more thing, please? Please do. Sorry. Um, we often will get emails from students or parents um, to teachers asking them, difficult or awkward questions uh, maybe it's something to do with um, how well they're doing in class and these kinds of things and the one thing that I do say to my department is that if you get anything like that send it to me and let me deal with it because I want the teachers in my department to focus on 
they're teaching. And if it's something that they can just reply and it's very easy, that's fine. But if it's awkward, I don't want them to have to worry about that. So they send that to me. Um, and I think uh, there may be other heads of department who, dis- who are listening to this who disagree with me. But um, one thing that I try to do as much as I can is take the kind of the awkward, difficult things away from the department. So I might in return ask somebody to coordinate the UKMT. Um, which is a little bit each year that he has to do. But in return, um, all the really horrible, awkward conversations and the things that nobody likes doing, I take those instead. (laughs) So there's kind of a a bit of a trade-off and balance to be had. But it also means I have a really good overview of what's happening um, across all the year groups, even the ones that I'm maybe not even teaching and across all the classes. And I can see what the perceptions are coming in from students and parents and these kinds of things as well, which is very useful for me informing um, my, my plans and the thoughts about everything I want to do. Fantastic. Superb stuff, Gemma. Um, well, you were on the podcast um, a while ago now. I think it's probably a year ago, if not a little bit more. And the reason I got you on was to talk about your book, but we got carried away talking about so much other stuff. We never got around to your book. So this this is your chance, Gemma. So it's a wonderful book. It's on my bookcase behind me here. So I wonder if you just wanted to give, give people a bit of a teaser about this. Uh, tell us a little bit about it. Um, crucially, I'm interested. Who's it aimed at, Gemma? Who will you hope will read it? And how will they get the most out of it? And I guess as well, is, is there anything in there that can be kind of particularly useful in, in the circumstances that we find ourselves in going into this new school year? Well, it was back in about, it was the, the latter part of 2017. I was thinking a lot about teacher training and the kind of fragmentation in the system with the the, the various routes of coming into teaching. And it was bothering me such a lot that you could have two teachers in the same school who'd come through such disparate routes and who would have uh, had such a hugely um, different experience in terms of what they'd learnt about, how many classes they'd taught and all sorts of things. So um, after talking to lots of people and thinking about it, it then struck me even more so that you had people coming in with um, different hugely varying levels of mathematical knowledge and it, I, I was very often reminded of myself starting teaching maths and I have a maths degree and um, I remember stand, uh, going to my interview for my PGCE with a wonderful lady called Pat Perks at Birmingham University and the first question on this interview she asked us was um, how do you divide one fraction by another and I very diligently said oh you do this is etc you, re- you reciprocate the second one multiply and she said and why do you do that and I looked at her <laughs> And I went, I don't know. <laughs> and I, here's somebody with a first in a maths degree who had never stopped to think about something as basic as why you reciprocate and multiply when you're dividing fractions. And that was through no fault of my own because I never had to think about it. I'd gone through my schooling, learned how to do it, and then I'd moved on um, and it had always worked. And I'd then gone on to a degree where I very rarely even met a number. So I'd never had to think about it. And I suddenly thought, even for somebody with a maths degree, upon beginning to teach mathematics, there is a huge amount um, or a huge depth of knowledge to school mathematics that you've never even given a thought to because you haven't had to. And that's somebody with a maths degree, let alone somebody with an engineering degree um, or anything else where you're allowed to teach maths because you're good at maths and you've had sufficient qualifications in it. Mm. So what I decided to do um, was 
try and write something that would help people to uh, earlier on to think about this depth of knowledge because what happened over my career and through talking to lots of other teachers it, it seemed apparent that this was the same for everybody was that they had they just kind of learned this stuff and gradually imbibed it as they went along um, because they, they were forced to think about it when they met students who maybe didn't understand how to divide fractions and couldn't remember it and they were forced to think of another way of communicating it and that was when they started to understand what was really happening. So what I wanted was to create something whereby you could read this um, upon starting your career as a maths teacher and it would force you immediately to think more deeply about school level mathematics. Um, so it's not it, it's called how to enhance your mathematics subject knowledge um, and because it fits into a, a scheme of books by Oxford all with the title how to. Um, and it's not designed to kind of teach you about um, maths beyond schooling or anything like that. But it's designed to make you question what you think, you know, um, why it works, how it works and whether or not your understanding of it, or how deep your understanding of it is. So the book is structured. It's, it's only on number and algebra, because when we start, when I started writing, it became apparent that if I were to do geometry and statistics and probability as well, it would just be far too huge. So yes. we kept its number and algebra and um, it's it's structured um, in, in in four large chapters, four large sections. Um, and it goes number, algebra, number, algebra um, and gradually builds up as the book goes through. So it's designed to kind of weave in things as we go along from earlier chapters. Um, and throughout it, there are elements of the history of maths where I thought that was useful and interesting to feed into understanding. There's elements of thinking about how you might apply ideas in the classroom. Um, and there's lots of quizzes. So there's lots of questions on um, specifically thinking deeply about the mathematics and questions that are designed to get you stuck. So when I was doing it, that when, when I was writing the quizzes, that was always in the back of my mind. How can I take something like um, factorising into two brackets and how can I make someone get stuck? So all the quizzes are designed with that in mind. Um, and so far, I've had really positive feedback from people on it. And even I mean, I, I aimed it at anybody who was starting to teach mathematics from any background. Oh, I might. I ought to add there as well that the other thing I was doing at the same time that forced me to have these thoughts processes is I was teaching something called the TSSP in school, which was the Teacher Subject um, Specialism Training, which was a government um, run um, scheme whereby people who were teachers of say of other subjects very often it was things like PE and geography were for whatever reason being asked to teach mathematics because we have a shortage or yes. had chosen to switch to mathematics and they would come to us um, and do this course which we did over the course of a year with Plymouth University um, through my my school and the teaching school um, and they would come and do this course with us and that got me thinking again really deeply about beginning to teach mathematics so that was what sparked that kind of helped to spark the whole thought process um but yes going back to what i was saying before since then i've had all sorts of um, comments from even from people who've been teaching maths for a long time who said oh i really like that bit in your book because i never thought of it that way or that question was really challenging because i had to think how to apply something i know to something i've never seen before um so it seems to be from what i've heard from people that even people who are um, experienced math teachers um, found it useful um, and interesting as well and if nothing else it's just got loads and loads of maths in it which is always a good thing
fantastic and i'll place a link to that in the link to the book in the show notes page and it's yeah it it is a fantastic book and what i'm going to do in my takeaway at the end of the episode that i always do is i'll reflect on a couple of my favorite parts of of the book as well and so Gemma, it's time for some reflections from you and this this doesn't have to be uh, well, one, it doesn't have to be particularly deep. And two, it doesn't have to be related to the kind of current situation we find ourselves in. It's however you want to interpret it. So question number one, what is an example of something important you've changed your mind about? OK, um, I trained to teach in 2004 and I was I came out of my teacher training. Whether or not this was the intention of my trainers or not, I came out of my teacher training believing that somebody can only really learn something if they discover it for themselves and my interpretation of that was I had to kind of present things at students without ever um, ever telling them anything directly this is going to sound so familiar to you Um, (laughs) without ever um, without being um, what's the word I want so I came out thinking that I would give them activities that would kind of draw this learning out of them but I can never actually just say this is how you do such and such whether or not that I'm very careful here I don't know whether or not that was the intention of my trainers but me with my um, novice brain in terms of education interpreted it like that Mm. now as with everything in life but especially in education it is so much more complex than that and it is so much more nuanced than that and what I what I have done is totally changed my mind on on that idea that I had I had formed in my early years of teaching, um, because now I believe it's perfectly fine to just tell a student how to do something and how to do a procedure. But what I also believe is that there is it's very important that you create multiple contexts um, and opportunities for students to um, deepen their understanding. So what what I haven't done is, I I suppose what I'm trying to say here is I haven't gone from stereotypical prog to stereotypical trad where I (laughs) tell everybody exactly what to do and then they practice 50 million questions and then that's it because I think that because because it's more than that, it's more complicated than that. But what I have done is um, tried to um, refine the way I do things so that, yes, I will tell my students how to do things, but I will also quiz them and I will also, that's not the right word, I will also challenge them and I will also give them prompts to make them think about something in a different way without necessarily telling them what I want them to think about, but only when I know that that's the right thing to do for that student at that time, which comes through all sorts of things like experience and practice and reflection and these kinds of things. So I don't know if I quite answered your question, but that was that was where I went with that when I was thinking about it. No, that's an absolutely, absolutely fantastic answer. And I think my answer will be something yeah, along very similar lines to that, Gemma. Um, my second question and my last question, um, I don't know if it's this, sometimes people kind of give the same answer and that's absolutely fine uh, to do so. But it's what do you wish you'd known when you first started teaching that you know now? I wish I'd known that most people can learn a huge lot more than you think they can. So I... I, if I look, think back to what my lessons were like at the when I in my first few years of teaching, I don't think I challenged my students nearly enough. Um, I don't think I um, expected enough of them. And 
teaching in the school I have now been teaching at for a long time and seeing what I have of what students are capable of, um, it's a whole lot more than I ever thought it was. And um, I just wish I could go back now and reteach all those students from all those years ago and actually get more from them because I know with what I know now, I could have. That's really interesting. You know, when I think about it, Gemma, I I, I often find myself, um, yeah, contemplating the same thing. Well, why why is that? Do you think is it is it that there was less resources available? Like, for example, when we we both started, both did our training at exactly the same time. When we started teaching, there was certainly no Don Stewart's resources around. We had the standards units, but they were for a very kind of limited number of kind of concepts and stuff. Was mm. is it is it a lack of resources, or is it is it simply a lack of experience? Or for me, I think one part of it is realizing the importance of not teaching topics in kind of discrete units. So I used to just teach straight line graphs, and that's all I teach for two weeks. I wouldn't bring in any other areas of mathematics. I wouldn't interweave and so on. What is it for you when you look back? What were the reasons you weren't you weren't going perhaps as far as you would do now I think a lot of a lot of what you mentioned just is exactly the same for me um and I'm not quite sure how to get around it so for the for instance you mentioned about um the experience and experience is so hugely important in education and I, I wonder how much as a system we value it because um the the kind of the the mental model the schema I have of teaching mathematics has developed over the years that I've been teaching it. And there is no way I could have known what I know now at the start. Um, I, I could have read things, but I wouldn't have necessarily understood them in the way I understand them now, because we always interpret things through the lens of our experience. Um, I think, was it was it Anne Watson when you spoke to her who said something about it, it speaks to your condition? Yes, uh, that's exactly right. Which, which is a phrase I'd heard before, but only in a in a in a religious context, I think. Um, and that it's so true because if you're not ready to understand something, you won't understand it, no matter no matter what. I don't think. So experience is hugely, hugely important. Um, and other than that, I think there's an element of we benefit now from the way the world works in terms of our access to uh, resources through the internet, our access to conversations with other professionals. So before I joined Twitter, my conversations were limited to the people that I work with day to day who are all wonderful, but you can only go so far within a limited sphere. Um, and you need and, and the moment I started talking with other people from other parts of the country and around the world and hearing so many different viewpoints it opened up my mind to the possibilities more because I was I was introduced to the possibilities. So I think I think it's definitely a function of what we have available to us now. The one thing I increasingly wish, though, is that we had a system of training for teachers in this country that um, that that was career long that um, understood all of these ideas that valued experience, that values experience, um, a system whereby you train to teach and you know that your um, teacher training is going to be relatively uh, relatively similar to the teacher training anybody else experiences because we've got maybe some kind of coherent um, unified curriculum for it. But also then that, that a, a planned curriculum for teacher development that goes um, across a career that's able to take somebody from being a novice teacher to being an expert teacher. And we don't have that because it's all too fragmented um, and it's all too haphazard. 
Um, and we nobody has ever created this kind of uniform way of uh, this kind of uniform progression throughout um, a, a teaching career. And I think we're really lacking that in this country. Yeah, I completely agree. It's um, it's come up on the podcast a couple of times. The fact that um, like all the good stuff you learn, you learn it at the point when you're not ready to to, to know it. You learn it in your PGCE or whatever whatever teacher training pathway you choose. And like I I look back at some of the stuff I did in my G, uh, PGCE. I'd I'd love to go back and sit in those sessions now. Being because I, I was lucky yep. enough to do it at Nottingham with uh, Malcolm Swan was there. I didn't have a flipping clue what he was going on about. That was the problem because I, I I had nothing to compare it to. I, yep. I had no experiences to compare and contrast. And it's. Yeah, you just wish you could just even just chunk it up a little bit. Have three months at the start, then have another three months after a couple of years, and so on. But yeah, for whatever reason, we don't, and our trainee teachers get bombarded with stuff that they're simply not ready to take on board. It's yeah, it's a it's a difficult one. And it's part of the reason one. we don't is because education is um, too tied to government, isn't it? It's too. Uh, mm. it, 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 I think such a thing would only happen if there were some kind of independent body that oversaw it. But then we also yes. have the issue of um, education is so very political anyway. Um, and any in, any independent body, whatever they were to create, there are, there are such extremes in education that it would be a huge, it would be a mammoth task to try and create something unified that um, enough people were were happy with because people have such strong strong opinions on the way education should work so uh it's yeah that's a man that's a that's a really interesting but big discussion so i'll stop talking (laughs) (laughs) fantastic right Gemma. so to wrap things up it's time to hand over to you for your big three uh so i wonder what three either websites blog posts or whatever you like would you uh, direct our listeners to check out and as ever i'll put links to these in the show notes it's not going to be anything that hasn't gone before but it's my it's the three websites that i use the most often that i just think are absolutely wonderful and my teaching would be worse without them um, and the first one is Don Stewart's Median. Nice. Because it's just amazing. And the activities that he creates on there. Again, I don't think 10 years ago I would have really understood how good they are. But now I can really appreciate what he created and why he created it. Um, and I just love it a bit. Um, the second one is Corbett Maths. Um, it is so comprehensive. And it's, I've particularly chosen this because of the lockdown now. Um, and I think that's going to be a lifesaver for a huge number of people. If you haven't seen this website, you need to go and check it out. You have got videos on practically every topic in the school curriculum. You have got um, textbook exercises that um, John Corbett has created for each of to go with each of these videos. And they are brilliant. So each of these um, textbook exercises, it's more it's, it's more than that. They're normally about four pages long and you have a section of kind of simple practice questions at the start. And then they get a bit more complicated and a bit more interesting and involved. And then you've got apply sections at the end, which is where he throws them, uh, throws in all sorts of problems and interleaves topics with previous topics and these kinds of things. And it's absolutely brilliant. Um, and I think we're going to be using a lot of that this year, especially when students are if, if they're stuck at home. And the third one is Johnny Hall's MathSpot. Um, I really, really love using interactive, uh, um, using um, manipulatives at the moment. I love algebra tiles, um, but I can't use them this year because we're not allowed to hand things out and take them and touch <laughs> stuff. So um, Johnny Hall's MathSpot and especially his online manipulatives 
are going to be invaluable for me. So that would be my three. That's a great choice. And you're right, they're, they're, they're classics, but it's, it's always worth, well, two things really. First, reminding teachers of the classics, but also talking about why you use them and, and why you've chosen them. And MathSpot in particular is a really interesting one there. I'd, I'd, you know what, I'd not thought about that. I, I've spoke on the podcast before how I'm a real novice when it comes to using manipulatives. I'm, I'm, I'm terrible. I'm terrible at doing them. And I'm, I'm always blown away when I see an action, what, what you can do with them. But of course, that's that's kind of out the window now. And yeah, we're going to have to turn to more interactive, well, uh, yeah, things that we can present to students in one go as opposed to hand out. And yeah, that's where Jonathan Hall's site is going to absolutely come into its own there. That'll be fascinating. I'd be intrigued. I might try and get somebody on the show to talk about the impact of this on early years where it's so kind of kind of tactile and stuff and what what, yeah. what, what, what they're going to do there when it comes. To, so if someone like Dr. Helen Williams, who talks so much about learning through you know, manipulating things, moving the hands, objects, and so on and so forth. I wonder what, yeah, how exactly that's going to be transformed. But that's, yeah, that's a really, really great set of, of choices there, Gemma. Um, well, this has been absolutely fantastic. I'm, I'm sorry it's taking you so long, to, well, it's taken me so long to get you back on the podcast, but it's certainly been worth the wait. And fingers crossed, this won't be your last experience uh, on here, Gemma. And I hope it all goes well in September. And on behalf of, well, myself, but all the other people listening for, for answering the, their questions with, with honesty and using your experience, I think what you've spoke about here is going to be invaluable. So Gemma Sherwood, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. Thanks, Greg. So there you have it. There was my interview with Gemma Sherwood. I really hope you enjoyed that one as much as I did. And I also hope it gave you plenty of things to think about. As I said in the introduction, and as Gemma emphasized to me after we'd come off air, she's not saying definitely do this, this is guaranteed to work or anything like this. This is just ideas that she's had in response to the challenges that many, many, many listeners will be facing. And hopefully, the suggestions that she's come up with, perhaps you can take and adapt in your uh, for your place of work, or it's made you think, no, actually, I'm not sure that's going to work. We're going to stick with what we planned and so on and so forth. Personally, I just thought there was so much gold dust sprinkled throughout that conversation that, fingers crossed, everybody listening will have something to take away from it. Um, two things I wanted to share in this takeaway. The first, um, as I discussed in the conversation, was just to mention Gemma's book. Now, the last time Gemma was on the show, she was supposed to be on to promote her book. And I felt so bad because as has often happens in <laughs> on this show, we got carried away talking about all the other things that build up to it. And we never got around to talk about the actual book itself. Um, so I just wanted to flag up a couple of my favorite things from the book, just in case you haven't uh, made the purchase. So it's called How to Enhance Your mathematics subject knowledge and as Gemma mentioned this book is specifically on number and algebra because they are pretty meaty uh, areas. Now each chapter is broken down into clearly um, labelled sections so you have a try this first and I'm going to come back to that in a second then you have preparing to teach do the mathematics now that's massive that um, I talk about this in in my book reflect expect check explain that there's a real danger that when we read books about maths about pedagogy and so on we see the actual maths and we just glance over it and think, oh yeah, that'll be fine, that'll be fine. It's only when we actually get down and dirty and do the mathematics ourselves as mathematicians 
that we can fully, I believe, appreciate what our students are going to be thinking. We can spot any potential issues with the exercise that we've given our students, any ambiguities, discover whether we've pitched it too easy or too hard and so on. And Gemma's book is littered with mathematics. Um, and that is a really kind of clearly set out section to actually do the maths yourself. Then there's some discussion, um, and I'm going to share one of my favourite discussion points in a second as well, then further exploration and then thinking about the classroom. So let's have a look at the try it first. <laughs> now these are really good. Um, they really, really, really get you thinking. So um, what about something like this? So I'll go to, which chapter should we go for? Uh, yeah, this is a good one. So scaling and proportional thinking, uh, section 3.1. So how many ways can you represent two multiplied by six in a diagram? Okay, but how many of these work for a half multiplied by six and negative two multiplied by six? Now that really, really got me thinking that. How, how do we represent multiplication involving fractions diagrammatically and also then multiplication involving negative numbers? So I really, really like that one. Um, what about this one as well for, uh, from 4.2 functions and graphs? What is the importance of function notation and how is f of x equal to different from y equals two? <laughs> it's one of those things that, yeah, I'm scratching my head with a lot of these things, but I've taught this stuff for years and years and years without ever actually thinking hard about these questions. And that's that's super important, right? Because if, I, if I'm trying to teach this stuff to my students and I haven't addressed these questions, these could be questions that are either running through my students' head and perhaps either they're too afraid to ask them or they ask them and I'm then having to think on my feet. So if I can get ahead of the game and think through these things first, it's going to be super useful. And there are also discussion sections. Now, um, over the last week, I actually put, uh, well, a, a tweet was, uh, was going out there that I was involved in. Um, I have been doing some ED summer school um, lessons over, over the summer holidays for year six students where they've been answering quizzes on diagnostic questions in ED. And each week um, on my weekly email for people who um, are registered with diagnostic questions, I share the worst answered question from a particular quiz. Um, and um, this was then tweeted out and it was all kicking off because the question was about negative numbers. Um, and it led into people, I won't mention any names, but people were weighing in saying the question's ridiculous and then it led to fractions are stupid and then blah, blah, blah. We, we, we shouldn't teach anything without a context and all this kind of stuff. Anyway, the reason I'm bringing this up is there's a wonderful discussion section in Gemma's book about uh, negative numbers. So I'll just read this to you. Uh, Some people like to teach negative numbers using a horizontal line since students are familiar with this from primary school. Other people prefer a vertical line often because of links with concrete objects such as thermometers. Should all students in your department be taught in the same way? Should they encounter both representations regularly or is one sufficient? Should teachers display a permanent number line in the classroom or does this stop students from having to think for themselves? So it's all stuff that I I just not thought about before going ahead and teaching something like negative numbers. And, and this is why this book in particular is super useful, I think, to use um, with a department or at least another colleague who's reading it. And then you can discuss these things uh, at the same time. Um, so yeah, it's a really, really good book. I'd strongly recommend uh, checking it out. Whether you're um, a less experienced teacher or perhaps you've got, um, you know, for example, you've got um, an NQT joining your department or for your PGC students, it'd be a great gift for those. But also if you're an experienced teacher, flipping egg, I was finding food for thought on pretty much every page. So that's How to Enhance Your Mathematics Subject Knowledge, Number and Algebra by Gemma Sherwood, and there'll be a link to that in the show notes. 
The second thing I wanted to discuss in this takeaway uh, was something that we discussed in the conversation, and that was perhaps the um, the challenge of assessment for learning whenever we can't actually get that close to our students to, to help them out. Now, this is where um, I believe diagnostic questions have a really powerful role to play, and Gemma alluded to this uh, in the conversation, and I promise I've not paid her in advance to, to say that. So I just wanted to talk briefly about one way that diagnostic questions could be used in this new situation that we find ourselves in in September. So at any stage in the lesson, whether it's at the start of the lesson to assess prerequisite knowledge, whether it's in the middle of the lesson to get a sense of how students are understanding the new concept, or whether it's at the end of the lesson to get a picture of where students are at to uh, then plan our teaching for next lesson, we can project a diagnostic question up on the board. There's over 40,000 of them at diagnosticquestions.com or for free. We project it up on the board and then we can say to our students, do you... Uh, project it up on the board, give them some thinking time, and then say, three, two, one, show me your answers. Now they could show answers with fingers, one for A, two for B, three for C, four for D. They could have, as Gemma said, they could have written A, B, C, D in the back of their books and hold it up. They could have cards that we don't hand out, or more specifically, we hand out once and the students keep hold of their own cards, perhaps in their pencil cases or in um, in a pocket in the back of their book or something like that. But they display their, they display their answers. And then what I do, it's the same process every time. I say to students, thank you very much. And I'll say, Emma, you think the correct answer is A, tell me why. Tom, you think it's B, tell me why. Sally, you thought it was C, tell me why. And we just, we just have a very polite, respectful discussion about each answer. And then I make it crystal clear what the correct answer is. That's really, really important. It's very important for me then to step in and hopefully remove any ambiguities or any confusion. But then, and this is the bit that I found particularly powerful, there's opportunities to dig that bit deeper. Um, so what we could say if we've got, let's say for example that a particular question is revealed that half the kids in the class have got some misconceptions. I, I need to help those students out. I need to do some small group intervention or I need to say, okay, if you're struggling with this, okay, you need to watch me on the board. But what do the other students do? Well, this is where it's super easy and super powerful, I think, because I can say to students, okay, so we've identified that the correct answer is C. And whilst I'm helping out the rest of the students, what I'd like you to do is, I would like you to write, how would you help a student out who thinks the correct answer is A? And how would you help them out if they think the correct answer is B? And what I want you to do, I don't want you to just explain how to do the question, but could you convince them why their choice of answer must be wrong? So not just why is the right answer right, but why the wrong answer is wrong. Now that requires some real depth of thought. And I can just give that out as a challenge to my students, the rest of my class, whilst I'm helping out the other students. I don't have to hand out a worksheet or anything like that. I, I could also say to the students who, who seem to know what's going on, uh, can you write me some new questions that make each of the wrong answers correct? I love that one. And again, nothing needs handing out or anything like that. It's no extra workload for me and it gives the students something super useful to think about whilst I help out other students. And finally, the ultimate challenge, of course, can you create your own diagnostic question on this subject? And what I want you to do, I want you to write the question, I want you to get a right answer, then I want you to think of three plausible wrong answers and explain to me why you've chosen those wrong answers. Now that will keep 
any student busy in a super useful way thinking hard. So perhaps if you've never used diagnostic questions before, um, or perhaps you've used them a while ago, but um, not revisited them, perhaps now could be the time we're in this new situation we find ourselves in to really get back into them. And it's all completely free um, and everything. And there's loads of questions on there. And I've been over summer, I've been writing a whole new batch of questions that I'm loosely calling the ultimate scheme of work, which will also be available on the site within the next couple of weeks or so. So you should have um, questions for all your needs. Anyway, uh, that's it from me. All that remains for me to do is to thank podcastteams.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. Uh, obviously to thank Gemma Sherwood for giving up her time and sharing her experience. Again, I thought it was a wonderful conversation that I learned loads from. And a big, big thank you to you, my lovely loyal listeners, for keeping on tuning in in your thousands and giving me the motivation to keep doing these things. If you wanted to support the show, the easiest thing you could do is to write a review wherever you get your podcast from. That really helps... Um, bump the show up in terms of the the visibility of the show and next thing you could do you could recommend an episode to a colleague perhaps even a non-maths colleague if you think there's one that they would enjoy checking out and if you really wanted to you can support the show uh, via patreon patreon.com uh, forward slash uh, mr barton maths that's where you can um, choose to give a one-off donation or a monthly donation if you choose to do so but the final thing i wanted to say is just be safe. Um, I know many of you, I think it'd be the vast majority of you, will be really, really looking forward to returning to school, getting back to doing what what you love doing, which is teaching students what you signed up to do. I know it's been hard for, for so many people and weird during, the, during this lockdown. I suspect the vast majority of students, even though they might not admit it, will also be looking forward to, to getting back to some semblance of normality. But there's nothing wrong being nervous. Your students will be nervous. Your colleagues will be nervous. You'll be nervous. So stay safe, but enjoy it. I think it's going to be the, the good antidote that, that everybody's been looking forward to and everybody's needing. Uh, getting back to teaching face-to-face -face and sharing your passion for your subject with your students and changing some lives. So enjoy September. Be safe. Th thrive on the challenges. And I'll see you with another guest on the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast soon. Take care and bye for now.